You are listening to Zen and the Art of Triathlon. Well, hey there, all you triathlon studs and studettes. And welcome to another great episode of Zen and the Art of Triathlon, the podcast where we go long on endurance and learn a lot about ourselves along the way. This is going to be another great episode because we have an interview. We were about to embark on a 322-mile gravel bike ride, bikepacking, three days, leaving from our house and going east in a giant clockwise circle through two national forests around one of Texas's biggest lakes, Lake Livingston, and back home again. An interesting thing, by coincidence, 320 miles over three days is what you do for an Ultraman. Now, unlike an Ultraman, which is a triathlon, this thing is going to be all biking, but a lot of it is going to be off-road on logging trails, backcountry roads through national forests. So the effort level you're going to have to put out is somewhat similar. And we're talking over 100 miles a day on your bike for three days straight and having to navigate unknown territory, we needed some help. Now through Instagram, I had made friends with Lisa Charleboy, and we'll get that name correction straightened out. (laughs) That name pronunciation straightened out in the podcast if I got that right again, or during the interview. But she is at hustle and a half on Instagram and she is the real deal. She has done Paris Breast Paris, which is a massive randonneuring bike bike race. I don't know if it's really a race anymore. It's a bike event. It's the oldest epic bike ride in the world. And you have to qualify. And I think it's, is it like 500 and something miles? Let's look it up. Oh my gosh. It's even bigger. 745 miles and it's nonstop. A lot of people sleeping on the side of the road. I mean, this thing is intense. So this is our interview for today. We recorded it before Kai and I left on our trip for two reasons. One, she's got some awesome stories. And two, for the advice that she has for us on what we should do for ours. Oh, and I should mention, on a triathlon Ironman podcast, why are we talking about doing a 300 and something mile bike ride <laughs> day after day? Well, the best way to get really good at biking 112 miles is to bike 300 and something miles. That 112 miles on a triathlon bike feels like nothing. When you put yourself in the saddle, for 120 miles, and then 120 miles, and then 80 miles, day after day after day, you develop that slow twitch, fat burning, and that grit that you need to psychologically harden yourself up, toughen yourself up for doing an Ironman. The human mind is a comparing mind. We learned that in Zen. And it's when you do something that you've never done before that you get a little scared and you hold back. But if you've done something before and you've survived it, you have something to compare it to. And as long as it's not as bad as the worst you've ever been through, you know you're fine. The way I got much better at running and was finally able to run the full marathon at the end of an Ironman was to actually get into trail running and start running 50 milers, you know, standalone 50 milers and even a 100 miler on trails. And then compared to that, the marathon at the end of an Ironman is nothing to worry about. And even the double marathon on the third day of an Ultraman is nothing to worry about because that's 52 miles on pavement with an aid station, you know, every mile or however you are often you want. And if you've done a trail run 
where it's an aid station every three or four miles for 50-something miles or 100 miles, and survive that, you know that you're going to be fine. So it's called over-distance. You go bigger than the distance in your single sport. And then when you have to do that distance mixed in with like multi-sport, triathlon, or just on its own, it's no big deal. You've got something to compare it to. So this is really great. Multi-day bike packing is a great way to build up confidence on the bike to be able to go really, really far and then run off of it. Okay. Now, since this was going to be our first quote-unquote bike packing, we were going to do it as easily as possible as far as the overnight staying because we have temperatures forecasted to be in the 30s to the 40s Fahrenheit, which is just barely above freezing. And I came up with the route just days before we left on it. So we weren't able to do any research on it besides the area right close to our house. So like maybe the first and last 30 miles we were familiar with and the rest of it was into the great unknown. So if you go back and look at my Instagram, you can see on at Zen Triathlon, the routes that we took each day. And so we left from College Station. Our plan was to leave from College Station and go northeast to Crockett, Texas, which is named after Davy Crockett. And that is the edge of the Davy Crockett National Forest. And the Davy Crockett National Forest is really raw, very un- undeveloped. And not just those roads, but the roads leading there, as soon as you get out of out of a city in, uh, in Texas, it is rural and it can get really gravelly and rough out there. And the other problem in Texas is this is not one of the Western states that is all like BLM open land and all that. It's almost all private land except in state parks and the national forest. So even though Google Maps says it's a road, we found out many times that it was not a road. It was private land. And you don't just go on somebody's private land in Texas. Because it's not just them that are out there with guns. It's the hunters that are out there and it's deer season right now. And it's always hog season. So if you're trespassing, it's not going to be long before somebody spots you and starts asking questions. So we have to be really careful. And we did encounter some hunters while we were contemplating about going down a private road that was gated off. But it would have been really hard to lift our bikes up over it since they were loaded down with so much gear. And we were just kind of standing there scratching our heads and... uh I'm actually really comfortable dealing with quote unquote country folk. I've been doing it as part of my job since the 90s. And you just be nice and tell them what you're doing. And the trick with this stuff is you tell them that Google Maps took you there and ask them for help. Is there a way that they can help you get around the obstacle? And the next thing you know, everybody, when they're not in the comment section on the internet, is actually really nice and wants to help each other out. And the next thing we know, we got all kinds of help and instruction from from hunters on like, maybe the, you could take this route, maybe you could take this route, but don't take that route. That route's bad. It's got too, much, too many cars on it. And wow, you guys are doing something really cool. How far have you come today? And and y'all are father, son. Oh, this is my grandson and my son. And, and you know, we're three generations out here in the woods. And it's just like, oh, it's so cool. So I'm going to go ahead and spoil the ending a little bit and say the trip went really, really well. And I think what I'll do is cover the gravel trip over two different shows and then also mix in the marathon mountain bike race that Kai and I did in Fredericksburg, Texas, going the other direction about the same distance. And that was a 42-mile mountain bike race, which is called, yeah, a marathon mountain bike race out in the German hill country. 
like if you go an hour and a half, two hours west of Austin. And yeah, we're not going to have too much swimming on this episode. The pool was closed over Christmas break for me, but we do have some running just a few days after finishing what I called the Pine Bird in 320. I'll tell you about that in a minute. (laughs) We uh, went and did a trail run race, uh, Emily and I did, and she did the 5K and I did, it just escalates from 5K to 15K. There is no 10K and then there's a 30K, but my legs pretty sore from doing that epic, epic bike ride. And so I did the 15K and got about middle placement. It's a really technical trail. And I talk about that. I'll probably save that for the uh, second episode of all this, but it was so technical that averaging an 11 minute mile was actually pretty good, especially after going out partying the night before because it was New Year's Eve and getting up early and actually uh, going for a trail run race. And one thing that's always a success about trail running is if you didn't fall down and you didn't twist an ankle or twist a knee, you get hurt. (laughs) And uh, yeah, don't get in over your head. And I successfully pulled it off. No problems. I've already recorded the the race review of that. We'll have that on episode two of this. But let me back up a little bit to the pine burden. Okay, there's been a saying in East Texas for a long, long time about the pine curtain, like the iron curtain of the former Soviet Union. And in East Texas, which is quite large, it's as big as many states. It could possibly be as big as Mississippi. I'd have to look at a map. There's this eastern chunk of Texas that is all heavy, heavy, thick pine forest. And Houston's on the edge of it. But besides that, there's no major cities like Houston, Dallas, or Austin in there. It's all medium to small size cities and very rural and a little bit mysterious and even spooky if you're not from the area and it's, you know, kind of different to you. And yeah, looking at a map, East Texas with the pine forest is about two thirds to three quarters, at least the size of Mississippi. I mean, it is big, but a lot of weird stuff happens back there. And a book came out in the, oh, actually it didn't come out that long ago. The book is named after the saying. The saying is really old. The saying comes back, geez, I don't know how long ago, but behind the pine curtain. So I would tell people at my work a long time ago that I'm going to like Tyler, Texas and east of there. And they'd say, oh, you're going behind the pine curtain. (laughs) It's like, what? (laughs) I had to learn this myself. (laughs) They're like, yeah, strange people back there. And I'm like, okay, whatever. And it's beautiful. I I grew up as a kid a lot in East Tennessee and in Alabama, Birmingham, Alabama, Northern Alabama. And it's like that. It's beautiful pine forest. So I love it. I love the pine forest. But the saying behind the pine curtain still stands. And there was even a book written, looks like here in 2006, like a romance novel with like mystery and stuff like that behind the pine curtain. So it is a saying. It's been way too long trying to explain that. It is a saying. And so I was looking for a play on words and also just to brand and name this ride we're going to do. So I called it the Pine Burden, like carrying a heavy load. So it's the Pine Burden 320. And I make maps and do navigation and map infrastructure and such for a day job, both urban and rural. So I'm not too bad at creating routes. And you know how you enjoy doing things that you're good at. So I sat down and plotted out a route and using my experience from longer events, made it so the the last day was the easiest day. Have lots of experience with thinking that just because a road is mapped on Google Maps, learning that it's not actually a road because they map it from satellite and using AI and have been forever. AI is not new. And from space, you know, they can't tell that there's a gate across the road or such. And once roads get gravel or dirt, they tend not to do the street view thing quite as much. It kind of varies county by county. So you can't use street view to see if a road goes through all the time. 
because the car just turned around. They're like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm scared. <laughs> I'm going to turn around the other way. <laughs> you see enough strange guys that pick up trucks with guns. Maybe you're just going to turn them back around, you know? Like, I guess it depends on who's driving. And being that we had gravel bikes and we wouldn't make it as adventurous as possible, but only so adventurous because this was our first time. The cool thing is, is you can reduce traffic by going down backcountry roads. And because you're on a gravel bike, it does not matter that it's backcountry roads and what the surface turns into. As long as you can get through, you can probably ride down it. And so you're playing this razor's edge game of making a route that is as backwoods as possible, but still hoping that the roads are still open and not gated off. So what we did on day one is I made the route go to Crockett, Texas, which ended up being like 110 miles on the map. And for that night, booked a cheap hotel on the south side of town. We were coming in from the southwest. We're going to leave from the southeast. And there's a little loop around the town. And I booked a hotel there. And in the interview with Lisa, she tells us about how to go eat dinner and stuff like that and get going again in the morning. And then the next day, we go through the western side of the Davy Crockett National Forest on what turned out to be crazy logging roads around Lake Livingston and then a massive climb up that I was not expecting until we did it through Point Blank, Texas. And there's a cool story behind that name. That's not what you think. I'll get to that later in the show. And did we go through Cut and Shoot, Texas? I don't think so. But Cold Spring, Texas. And through an area where there's been known mountain lion sightings and then ended up in Huntsville, Texas. And that one, Kai's girlfriend lives with some other girls that were all home for vacation, uh, Christmas break. So it's just Kai's girlfriend and we had access to her house. She goes to Sam Houston in Huntsville, Texas, Sam Houston University. And we're gonna stay at her place overnight. So we were gonna couch surf it. And then the last day have the shortest day, but go through the rest of the Sam Houston National Forest and then end up in College Station back out on the prairie. So as I'm making this map, and I'm running into road after road where I'm like, man, I do not know if this goes through. And I know from my experience in these national forests, and I have a degree in forestry as well. I have a master's in forestry. The national forests are actually used for logging. And what's a road now is not a road again for a long, long time, if ever. There's abandoned roads. But what's on the map, you know, was mappable when they made it, the map. But it's been years. And that thing could no longer exist. It could have gates across it. We found out there's logs across it, bridges blown out. And then also logging roads are just barely drivable in four-wheel drive. They have main logging roads, which you've probably been down on in a car. You could drive a minivan down some of that stuff. But once you get off the very main logging roads going through a national forest and the side roads that actually take you where you want to go, they could be goat trails if they're passable at all. So I mentioned to Kai a few days before we left, said, hey, just float this idea out there. Maybe do we want to drive out there and see if the more questionable roads are actually usable, that they actually punched all the way through from one end to the other? And then Kai said, uh, no, we really don't have time. It would take a lot of gas and time. And, and uh, he didn't want to bother with it. And I just chalked it up to, you know what? We're just going to have an adventure. We'll figure it out. So on one hand, we did figure it out and it was fine. But on the other hand, oh my gosh, it could have gone bad. <laughs> if it had been raining or if we had some sort of mechanical disaster and the road had turned to like muck and sand, like some of the roads still were from a rainstorm about a week before, it would have been horrible. So we got really lucky. But that's part of the planning. 
So again, we came up with this idea to go do this. Kai's always wanted to do a bike packing trip. Lachlan Morton just put out a video of him bike packing the Colorado, no, not the Colorado Trail, the Continental Divide, which is really, really, really long. It's from Canada to Mexico, off-road gravel. And you do a mix of camping in a tent or staying in hotels or staying in little houses and shelters, just kind of varies, grabbing food from stores. And so we're looking for that same kind of experience, really motivational, really cool guy. And so Kai was off from college for Christmas break. My work had given us a week and a day off. So eight days off the week of Christmas. Christmas was on a Monday. So we had all these other days after that. And we had this weather window where it was going to be no rain, somewhat sunny, cold as hell, but it wouldn't have rained for a couple of days before we left and no rain in the forecast for the next few days. So theoretically, it could be okay. So I sat down, like I said, and planned out this route. And besides the roads being questionable about whether you could connect through them or not, the other thing that came to mind was this is a lot of time in national forest and a lot of time on back roads, if they're even roads, where there's nobody around. And if you have a mechanical bike issue or the road turns to sand or mud and you end up having to walk or carry gear on your back or pushing a bike, or you get lost in the national forest and you end up spending the night in the freezing weather, we are not in civilization anymore. This is now, we need to be ready for a little bit of wilderness survival in case we have a problem. So I found this half exciting and half problematic because most likely everything will be fine, but you just don't know. But also, Kai and I are both Eagle Scouts and Kai has done two high adventure backpacking trips in Northern New Mexico in the Rockies 10 days at a time, where we do three days at a time with no uh, food resupply, which would be similar to this. We packed all of our fuel for three days. And you have to be like totally self-sustaining for days at a time at high altitude and cover, I think his trips were like 60 to 80 miles. And I went on both of his, so I've done that as well with him. And then when I was a teenager, I did a almost 100-mile trip, I think, in the same area in 10 days. And then also I've done parts of the Ozark Highlands Trail twice, the Lone Star Trail, and also have like wilderness survival merit badge and taught wilderness survival to people. And the big joke with Emily is she and her friends say that they should get me on a wilderness survival show. Because <laughs> whenever I see one on TV, I'm like, they're doing that wrong. <laughs> I, I'm definitely like, a lot of times I'm like, wow, that's impressive. I, I could never think of that, you know, when they have the really badass people on them. But uh, I know my stuff about wilderness survival and the very first thing you know is the wilderness is more powerful than you and you better be freaking prepared. It's kind of like swimming in a current. You're not in control anymore. So you just better bring some extra stuff to minimize the death by a thousand cuts out there in the wilderness. And I'm not being facetious. You could be deep in the woods like we were and have a flat like I did or break a spoke like I did or get stuck in heavy mud, which we managed to get around, but there was lots of it on some of the other roads that we didn't go down or stuck in the heavy sand, which has happened to us there in the summer. And the next thing you know, instead of doing 14, 15 miles per hour, you're doing one mile per hour. And then you're spending the night in the woods with the bears in the mountain. So on one hand, I'm like, oh, this is dangerous, exciting. Uh, Kai and I should be able to handle it if we bring the right stuff. But also the scenery is going to be awesome. So I ended up carrying about 10 pounds of extra gear that you normally wouldn't take on a bikepacking trip unless it was like through heavy woods that you could get stuck in overnight. So 
a Leatherman parachute cord, which is rope, which is rope, which is a lightweight type of rope. Spare spokes, two lighters, a mercy blanket, first aid kit. I packed extra layers of clothes. Kai went with the same kit the entire time. And come to think of it, I'd forgotten about this. Just a few years ago, we took Kai's Boy Scout troop, the older boys, out to the Sam Houston National Forest, hiked seven miles in during January so that it was below freezing overnight, had them leave all the tents at the cars. So they had to build emergency wilderness survival shelters out of whatever they found on the trail. Uh, And this is on the Lone Star Trail. You can sleep anywhere on the trail. It's like the Appalachian Trail. Same idea. And at most, you got a little bit of a tarp. And we did it and it was fun. And my shelter that I made is I cut down palmetto leaves and then made like a frame that was <laughs> felt like a coffin when I was in it and then had them laying against each other to make like a, yeah, like a, like a Toblerone chocolate, a triangular uh, coffin that I was in and then just piled up pine needles all over it, dried pine needles all over it. And that actually created like incredible insulation. And then I was warm overnight. So if Kai and I got stuck in the forest overnight, we definitely would have built one of those for both of us to sleep in, to keep each other warm, and then taken all of our Gatorade and whatever food that we had on us, Oreos, <laughs> and which is on a video on Instagram, and hung that from a tree up high. Uh, there's technically bears to be in the area. Um, they're really not much to worry about, but it'd be fun just to practice it. Throw, up a, throw the food up in a bear bag and then survive the night and then set something on fire, and uh, and then we'd be all right. We we did ride through a whole bunch of uh, controlled burn areas where you where the rangers purposely set the forest on fire in the winter time because the fire it's cold and damp enough the fire is not going to spread out of control and it makes like this cool spooky scenery. So that was cool to ride through. So yeah, that's what we had ahead of us, and I couldn't be more happy to have Lisa, aka Hustle and a Half on Instagram, call us on Zoom and give us this awesome interview just a day or two before we were going to leave with tips and tricks. And I got to say, it really put my mind at ease. And after talking with her, I felt like we could totally do this. So that's plenty of an intro. Let's go ahead and get Lisa on and hear a little bit about her and also her advice to us as we're about to embark on the Pine Burden 320. Here we go. Because the very first thing I wanted to say is I approve of your room decoration there. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we got lots of bikes. And then the scary part is that there's more bikes behind that door. There you go. See? Nicely done. (laughs) Oh, and the dog, too. Oh, wow. There's a bike next to that column somewhere. There's Perfect. Yeah. No. I mean, there has to be at least a bike per person in every, you know. There's another bike over there and then another one around the corner over there. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. Very oh, cool. Right. Yeah. Uh, so just to get things out of the way, how do you say your last name? Charlebois? Charlebois? Oh, Charlebois. Charlebois. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good thing Timothy Charlemagne so famous right now because that helps. Oh. <laughs> you know, the funny part is that if you were in Montreal, Charlebois uh-huh. is like Smith. It's like yeah. the most common name ever. And then you come to the U.S. and it's like, ooh. Oh, fancy. <laughs> All right, I'm very excited to have with us on the show today, Lisa Charlebois. How's it going, Lisa? Good. I'm great, thanks. And I have the 
the biggest compliment to pay Lisa. And uh, the the way I found out about Lisa was I was following her already on Instagram. And because Lisa seemed like a legit badass long distance cyclist that's like backpacking, randonneuring, which is more road based, I guess. And then although you do have a really funny phrase I saw the other day where you said on 28 millimeter tires, every bike is a gravel bike. <laughs> that's right. so then uh um and so i was following you because uh you have a really cool instagram i guess channel or whatever we would call it presence and you really seemed to like know what you were talking about but also we're having a lot of fun but it wasn't like any kind of bs it wasn't like overly um artificial or something like you were like showing like real tips and like real stuff and the way you were dressed and the way you were actually doing it didn't seem to be um, just hype, right? It was like real. And I was like, cool, I'm going to get some tips and information from Lisa. It's Hustle and a Half is the Instagram channel, right? Yes, that's me. I call exactly. it the right thing, Kai. Is it called a channel? I, 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 yes, that is. Okay, right. we have our resident, <laughs> uh, <laughs> our, our Utes uh, social media expert here with us, Kai Blankner, and he's going to make sure we're on the correct uh, yeah, that's, terminology. That's right. Yep. Using, Thank goodness. Like, stuff is fire and lit. And uh, yeah. I'm already making you cringe. A little bit. Yeah. And <laughs> I then, can see his face. Like He's just, like, I'll oh. stop that. Yeah. And then, and then um, so anyway, uh, just recently you were doing, I noticed you were doing a um, a bike, I don't know, bike packing. Bike packing would be more like off-road, I guess. Mm. But you were doing more like randoneering. I guess. And uh, you're going to explain all that to us, the difference and stuff, if there is much. Mm-hmm. And then the, um, you were going into a headwind like crazy in the rain, oh, even yeah. though it was beautiful, it looked like it kind of sucked at the moment and you were laughing. <laughs> and so in your comments, I posted the link to my latest, one of my latest, oh, yeah. where I was riding by myself into this horrible headwind and it was not a scenic place and i was being sarcastic about how wow this is so great i'm so glad i'm best use of my time doing this you know it was funny and then i had no expectations that you would click i mean who clicks on a link in their comments that could be dangerous right you could go to like <laughs> spam or yeah yeah and then but then i got a mess a direct message back saying ha 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 that was really funny and mm-hmm. also that you followed my show right and so um and that you really thought it was great that i messaged you and so what's what i think is so cool is that you and i both like followed each other <laughs> not knowing that we were following each other because we yeah. like we were doing so much so this is like really cool oh my gosh i feel like respect I feel like each I've... other so much Dude, I'm I'm so flattered. The things you just said and and all of that is just so I don't know, warms my heart cuz you know, you're a creator and you make stuff and you're like, I don't know, does anyone care? Like it's just <laughs> me in the rain for 12 hours, like whatever, but um I'm also just on a personal note, I feel like I've I've felt Kai grow up. I mean, from like <laughs> on the pod, it's been like Kai's story as well. So this is really cool to meet you and to see you and and to see all your accomplishments as well. It's it's amazing. That, so you're based out of uh, San Francisco right now, or the or where where are you out of? 
Yeah. So I'm a Canadian. So I grew up in Canada, but now I'm in the US and I'm up here in San Francisco. And uh, and yeah, I, I've been riding bikes since Toronto and I lived in New York, LA, and now San Francisco. Oh, you live in New York too. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. That was a very brief biking career in New York City. <laughs> Did you try to be a bike messenger or anything crazy? Oh like God, no, absolutely not. It was, oh gosh, that, hats off to anybody that can bike in New York. I mean, that's a whole other kettle of fish. Yeah. Uh, let's see. When I was a young young guy, they, uh, Quicksilver with Kevin Bacon was a famous movie, a bike, mm. a bike, bike messenger movie. The nice. original bike messenger movie, which was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, then, uh, uh, so let's see, you were biking from the, your last one. Was it from Monterey back to San Francisco or was it further away back to San Francisco? Oh yeah. We started in San Francisco. We, um, went down. So originally the route was actually going to be more like 400 and some miles and then a buddy of ours bailed. So then we were like, fine, we'll just do the three day route, which is like 300 and some. And then he just totally bailed. So then it was just me and my husband. And yeah. we're like, well, I kind of want to do this anyway. So started in Monterey, went down or sorry, started in San Francisco, went down to Monterey day one. That was like 127 miles. Uh -huh. um, I, I, I can't remember the elevation. And then day two, we just went down the Big Sur. So mm -hmm which was, I've never done that before. And holy cow, it's spectacular, like truly mm -hmm. epic. Um, that day was pretty awesome in the sense that the weather was complete garbage. And mm -hmm. so at one point we like went into a ditch and like waited for this storm to pass for like 45 minutes because it was just yeah. total chaos. And, uh, and then day three, we just ended up coming back from Monterey and going to San Jose. So it wasn't as like gnarly as the original route, but, um, but it was a nice one. I mean, for this early in the season, this, this was enough mileage for us. Okay. And then also a little bit of background on you, uh, when you and I were talking through, uh, Instagram messaging a while ago, you said you are a legit triathlete. You actually did a triathlon or two or one, or you trained for one. <laughs> And they found that you fell in love with cycling more than anything else, right? Oh, I'm not a runner. I mean, it was just oh, yeah, a you're not pathetic a attempt at running. So yeah, no, I did uh, I did one half Ironman. And uh, when I turned 40, that was like my, oh, I'm going to go do something big. And I trained for it. And I did the Atlantic City half Ironman, huh? which was yeah. awesome. I mean, I yeah. crushed the swim. The, the bike was great. And then the run was a complete disaster. It was like... 12 minute miles or something. It was like just game over. So um yeah, that was the end of my triathlon career. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Did you get into like doing endurance stuff? Is like was Zen Try like part of your part of your path of getting into like long distance stuff? Like give you tips or Oh my gosh. I mean, I listened to your podcast throughout all my training uh -huh. on that triathlon. And I did like shorter ones before that. Yeah. And then I think um it was just kind of one of those things where you're like, well, what do I do next? You know? And like, what's my thing? And, um, it was a, a friend of mine that started talking about Paris, Brest, Paris, which right. is like, we're going to talk about that. That is awesome. It's, it's a pretty, it's like the, the burning man of bikes in a way. It's like yeah. this super epic 1200 kilometer ride. And, uh, and that's where I kind of started thinking about the endurance stuff really. So how so. far is 1200 kilometers? Is it 
800 miles or something? 750 miles. So PBP is um, every four years. And uh-huh. it started in 1891, I think. Right. And it was older than the Tour de France, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. And it was actually competitive back in the day. So yeah. these guys, which is insane to think you do like a 750 mile race, mm-hmm. like on bikes from the 1800s. I can't even anyway. So um, so now it's uh, it's an amateur event, but you have to qualify. There's a lot of um, rules and sort of regulations around it. And it's in the sport you could call, which is randonneuring, which is a form of cycling, which as you could imagine is just endurance cycling. And, um, and PVP is like their big, the Olympics of endurance cycling, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting that it's only every four years. That really surprised me when I heard about that. There was an interview with somebody, I don't know who it was like, a few months ago I was listening to that did it mm-hmm. and they did a really in-depth interview like um every day what it was like and mm-hmm. really I mean it's really cool and it surprised me that it's only every four years I guess it's so big they can only pull it off every four years or something yeah and I think psychologically like ugh, you need a you need a minute like first off you have to qualify so in order to qualify that's a two-year process so yeah. you start two years before and they take your longest randonner ride. So you have to do these with, um, in the U.S., it's the Randonneurs of America. And then mm-hmm. you have a randonner chapter. So the San Francisco Randonneurs. Mm-hmm. And you have to do their rides. You can't just go out and do a 600-kilometer 600, 600 ride. They're just right. like, no, no, no. you got to do our route. Right. And there's checkpoints you got to hit and all that stuff. So that's two years before. And then the year leading into it, then you have to do a 200, 300, 400, and 600 kilometer brevet and Mm -hmm. all of that has to happen before june of the pvp event and then you get your like hey you've done it congratulations and then you get the ticket and you get to go to france so what what um but one thing i i encourage people to do is like if uh if they want to do like iron man and stuff like that is to get better at something you go overboard on the training on that one thing and so yeah. randonneur, if you want to become a better cyclist, you know, <laughs> you need those 112 miles needs to seem easy. You know what I mean? So that yeah. you, you, you're not in over your head, you know, and then oh gosh, yeah. cool is, oh, well, with the randonneuring and the brevets, are they gravel at all? Do they try to stay on pavement no matter yeah. what, or do they, do they not care, you know, or is it okay? Yeah. No gravel. There's there's um mixed terrain. So my first brevet was a 300 kilometer gravel brevet. Uh-huh. The the trick though is that they don't give you more time. So it was like <laughs> yeah. So it's a real kick in the teeth. Yeah. And it was hilarious cuz I did it on 28s actually on my Cannondale Super 6 uh-huh. road bike. Um <laughs> it was kind of like one of those things where you don't know any better. So you're like, yeah, this will be fine. And I think it was about 16,000 feet of climbing in a hundred and whatever it is, 72 miles or yeah, yeah, it was bonkers. So yeah. yeah, And you only get, uh, I think for a 300, they give you like not 20 hours or something. So, um, yeah, we were coming in not right at the end, but we definitely used a lot of that. You got people looking at you like, wow. 
she's on a Cannondale road bike. She must be a pro or something. Absolutely (laughs) not. No, actually I have no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) Oh my God. My husband blew through a brake pad. Like he just was like, it was, it was just a crazy, crazy time. Yeah. So with what, Oh, so one of the reasons of this phone call is we're going to look at my uh, route that I made because Kai and I are going to do our first uh, bike packing. Kai started one to do bike packing. And um, so we came up, this will be our first ever. Now we've done lots of backpacking, high adventure backpacking, where you resupply like every three days, high elevation, um, bear country. You got to carry all your own food, find your own water and stuff. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, you know, we totally know how to do this kind of thing. But the one thing that I would say that we take from that is you can't rely on anything Mm. (laughs) and you have no idea what's actually going to (laughs) happen. And um, it's actually a little bit more complicated because, uh, you know, backpacking, you've got, you got a stove and you've got your, um, like your your backpack and some gear, you know, that's Mm -hmm. like mechanical stuff you got to work on, but with bikepacking and uh, randoneering and doing brevets is you've got um, a bicycle, which is a, I mean, that, that thing breaks your, you gotta like, that's a whole different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, if your backpack, you know, splits a seam or a frame cracks a little bit, you can kind of patch that mm. up going, mm-hmm. but that's different than a chain breaking or like breaking spokes or something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So that's what, we got questions for you about that. And then we're definitely, since this is our first, we're going to stay, we could do the clock. We could do the course clockwise or counterclockwise mm-hmm. and which way we decide to do it. Uh, one day, the first night, like if we do it clockwise, the first night is we'll have a hotel. We're going to get a cheap hotel. That's a nice And move. I've heard that that's a smart, <laughs> for our first one, that's a smart idea. Yep. <laughs> and then plus it's going to be cold. Yeah. Ah. And, yeah. Um, and then there are state parks, you know, we'll be in the national forest, stuff like that. But it's like, you know what? We got we got questions for you about like charging devices and things like that. Mm-hmm. And we don't have the gear yet to mm. like charge stuff, right? So that's why a hotel, mm-hmm. Or staying at somebody's apartment. Uh, Kai's girlfriend lives in Huntsville, mm-hmm. where on ah. day two, if we go clockwise, we could mm-hmm. stay at her place and then charge up stuff again, you know, for the next yeah. day. Which is, if you were doing like real bike bike packing, you'd have to do like solar and like I don't know, you'd have to find places to charge stuff. Which I think we need to work our way up to yeah, something like sure. that. Mm-hmm. And then, um, but the reason we want to do it is during the pandemic, especially everybody started doing these FKTs, like famous people, Ah. like Morton Mm -hmm. and um, vegan cyclists and Mm -hmm. um, Keegan Swenson, you know, just like these epic. Mm -hmm. uh, We started following more people to doing the Colorado trail and stuff like that. Yeah. uh, Ryan Van Duzer, who's really inspirational. And we're like, man, this, this is something that would be really, really cool. And, Mm. um, and then to bump into you, where you seem to have, obviously, have a lot of experience kind of doing this. But you you haven't been doing it actually that long, right? You you fell in love with it. And, like, dope, that's part of your story is, like, you fell in mm-hmm. love with it, like, so hard. Like, Yeah. I mean, I know. It, I've been cycling for, like, 20 years. I mean, yeah. but you're right. Like, that like a flip switch happened and then it was like i think we should do 700 miles yeah that's a great (laughs) idea like so um yeah i've I've been randonneuring i guess two or three years something like that 
because uh-huh. it was pretty much my husband turned 50 and it was the same like he turned 50 on april 19th and pbp was april 20th or 21st so it was like well if we're gonna do a big birthday this is it and that kind of got us going so hear that emily what? yeah <laughs> for my birthday we're gonna bike from paris to hundreds of miles away from paris and then back again yeah she she goes mm, really yeah <laughs> so then uh uh let's see let's pull up the route you had, I'd love this. You actually asked for the route because you wanted to kind of go over it a little bit. What Kai and I are going to do. Yeah, it. I, I tried to recreate it. Honestly, I was trying to plot it in Google. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I don't know that I did a successful job of it, but I was trying to figure out I, one. First off, I'm thrilled to hear you're staying in shelters because like uh. there's plenty of time to get real gnarly, like with tents and all that business. But yeah. Yeah, we've done the thing with hypothermia at twelve thousand feet several times, yeah. you know, and that's uh, cool. <laughs> that's, you know, that's not a first time experience thing to do. Yeah, it's when I mean, you're really hardcore and you've gotten so much experience, you know exactly how to. Uh huh. Because have you um, done any like when it comes to endurance cycling? Have you gone three hundred miles before, even on the road? Like just period. I haven't. I don't know if you have. I've done. I've done an Ultraman, which is a stage race, you know. And okay. Then, and then um, when we did the Cactus Cup, I mean, the equivalent is kind of like that. Mm-hmm. It's off road, but it's a it's a three day stage race, you know. Yeah. Oh wow. And, okay. Um, so day one is only a time trial, but day two is forty four miles mountain biking in the desert, mm. like a lot of elevation, and then day three is enduro. Mm-hmm. so you know like so we've done three day events mm-hmm. and um but not not quite like this but backpacking in the rockies and um i've done the ozarks and a little bit of the appalachian trail is um mm-hmm. you uh you, you know i know things like you got to really really hold back and pace yourself at first mm-hmm. and then uh, kind of see how things unfold. Kind of like your trip you were talking about, you know, you got yeah. to change on the fly. Yeah, yeah. But and- that's the other reason why you guys are smart because just that much volume in your body, you know what I mean? You don't need to add more complication of like, and now I'm going to sleep on the floor. Like, it, it, <laughs> you know, em- embrace a bed and some heat and a shower. I mean, these things are going to feel amazing, you know? yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we've done again, you know, 10 days at a time or something like that. A hundred I've done hundred mile backpacking trips. Mm-hmm. And where you resupply like every three days and high elevation. Mm-hmm. And um you're gonna dry camp at ten thousand feet and you gotta pick up mm-hmm. your water at five thousand feet. So you gotta carry four liters of water per person up oh, a twelve thousand foot climb and then yeah. and then figure out how to stay warm at night. And then there's a wildfire on the horizon. You know? <laughs> I'm like, I'm never doing that. That sounds. Yeah. And then uh, when I was a kid, I was doing that. And we got chased by a bear as we dropped the bear back down. Like he was waiting for us to, to oh drop. My the gosh. It's really comical, actually. When you think about oh, it. boy. So this course, a... <laughs> one thing I thought that Kai and I should come up with is a name for it. And, you know, in East Texas, it's called the Pine Curtain. We're always up to change this. Okay. Because East Texas is heavily pine forest. A lot of people don't know that. They think all of Texas is all mm-hmm. desert, and it's not. East, The eastern third of Texas is thick pine forest. Mm-hmm. And they call it the pine curtain, like the iron curtain of 
of, uh, okay. <laughs> of East Germany the, and Russia. And once you're back in there, man, who knows what happens back in those woods. And so, like, uh, so we're going to go from the prairie to through the pine to the back of the pine curtain and then mm -hmm. back again. And so Got we're going to call it the, and it's about 320 miles. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to call it the pine burden. Uh, 320. <laughs> I like it. It's so that way we got some branding, just, you know, yeah. and we can get some following on the pine bird. Kai and Brett try no. to do the pine burden 320. Oh yeah. No, it's got to have a little bit of pain in there. It's got yeah, to yeah, feel yeah. like, you know, you're, yeah. you're soldiering through. Hey, yeah, I yeah. think it's cool. I mean, so, um, so where do you want to start as far as how I can help, help you? Well, do you want to talk about gear and stuff first? Or do you want to talk about the course yeah. first? I mean, I think maybe as, maybe if we talk about gear, it okay. will apply to the course. So my gear questions mm -hmm. are, um, we can start off with, um, do we need a first aid kit? Hell yeah. Okay. Always. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Next question. No. Um, and what should be in it then? So, I mean, I actually take a first aid kit on every single ride, like a coffee ride. I oh. have a little tiny first aid kit in my, my like uh saddlebag of all my bikes. Now, as far as your, I'm going to expand this first aid kit to your whole gear kit. Like, so if you can see here, this is my, this is the bike I rode Perry breast on. And you mm -hmm. see that little can thing on the down tube, yep. that little white thing. So that's a third bottle cage, which I personally really like because then I use that as my little canister for tools, first aid kit, all the sort of garage that is your bike. Yeah. In that, I have things like a spare derailleur hanger. Like if if your derailleur hanger, if you crash, like, I mean, God forbid, but if it happens and you break a derailleur hanger, you're done. You, there's no zip tying that thing together. So right. it's totally worth getting a spare derailleur hanger. Um, that way it's just one giant thing you don't have to stress about. Right. On top of that, uh, zip ties are super helpful um, on, as, as well as all, all the normal things, tire irons, like... Um, what about spokes? I mean, the chance of you breaking a spoke, I, again, I'm sure the internet will explode on me, but like, that's not that intense. Like, I don't think... And plus, you can ride with a broken spoke. Like, you just pull it out and you'll be fine, right? Now, if you broke a bunch of them like then we have a problem but for the most part i mean are your wheels super old have they not been serviced in a million years like that's the other part of this is well, we like we started breaking spoke he broke a couple spokes recently yeah, but they've been replaced but so, i mean that's kind of a sign so did you get the spokes at your apartment did mm -hmm. you grab them? yeah so he's actually got some spare spokes that'll fit his wheels so i said i've got a frame bag i'm like just carry oh, a spoke sure and then do you know um, how to but do you know how to put it in that's the other part. He does. Kai worked at a bike okay. shop. Okay. <laughs> then great. Then go for it. Sure. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, I I mean, I I wouldn't bring it because I'd be like, I don't know what I'm doing here. Like I would just be kind of like useless. But um, but the tire iron, like your tire iron, your um your tubes. I also like um uh a little mini bungee cord. Like you don't realize you need some of this stuff until you need it. So like just little things like that, that are really simple. Um, I always have a pump as well as CO2. Like I don't uh, just in case. 
And my little hack is I like to put a bunch of electrical tape around my pump. So right. then you have some tape. Like it's just kind of, again, a little no brainer thing. So right. in that little canister, I also have my first aid kit. In that I have antiseptic wipes. So I buy everything that's tiny on Amazon, right? Or wherever you buy your things. So antiseptic wipes. Um, I have uh, antibacterial like neosporin in those tiny little packages, uh, band-aids, uh, maybe some butterfly closures. And, uh, I'm trying to think now. Oh, and then I make a little, um, like med kit of Advil, Tums, Benadryl, and aspirin. So that way, I mean, God forbid someone has an allergic reaction. At least you can take a Benadryl. If someone's <laughs> having a stroke, I guess you could take an aspirin. I mean, I'm not a doctor. This is not medical advice. But as far as I can kind of understand of like things that could go really, really sideways, that's kind of why I take some of that stuff. And I've used that medical kit so many times. Like even on PBP, this dude crashed in front of me. And like, yeah. maybe it's not for you, it's for other people too. Sometimes. Well, exactly. You know, and, and I patched him up and he was on his way. So we've got a funny story. Emily and I were doing a, um, uh, a long bike ride. That was a community ride, you know, mm -hmm. I forgot what we call this, but anyway, and then, uh, somebody crashed, this lady crashed. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I did is I went over to her bike and then told her it would be okay. <laughs> <laughs> and she was banged up. And oh was, no. And I was like, <laughs> But her bike was beautiful. It's like a titanium bike, you know. Oh, jeez. Um, all right. Okay. The bike's okay, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. Okay. Um, we're going to uh, have to end this meeting in 10 minutes. And then um, because I've got the free. Oh, but sure. we're going to we're gonna hop right back on when, when that happens. Okay. Although we have, cool. to wait, we have to wait like seven minutes or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. It's just our little warning. Okay. So then one thing that I bring on, I carry all the time on my bike. And also when I, cause I got into doing trail running and mm. I learned to carry Vaseline lip therapy cause they're real small. Mm. And then as soon as you get a hot spot, you know, you can, you can put it mm. on. Hot spot. And then I actually tend to use that all the time. I had a hot spot in my bike shorts where they were like rubbing on the mm. outside of my hip and it's so easy and you just get it at any gas station. Mm -hmm. Yeah. On soon. So that's one of my things for sure. I could add to that. But yeah, yeah, we're looking to getting all this stuff. Emily's a nurse. So oh, well, she can tell us pro. she'll have to write on the on the packaging which do we take for what? The Advil. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always confused. Comes, I know. Yeah. yeah. When do you take Advil? When do you take ibuprofen? Yeah. I mean, that Advil is same? super it, I've used that like because what ends up happening is on these long rides, it's uh -huh. all the soft tissue goes to beans on you. Your hands are going to really hurt. Your butt's going to really hurt things that like your legs will feel great, but stuff that you can't really control is going to go. And it hurts to, to touch your handlebars. You're in a, exactly. In and that's where, hole. you know, Advil in, in France, they had this thing called Voltaren, which is like a topical Advil. Oh, yeah. if you can get that, that stuff's magic. It's amazing. I heard that's a competitor to biofreeze, Emily. In here. She's not in here. Not Emily puts biofreeze on all the time. And that meant oh, the there you go. She puts it on in a car while we're all driving together. We're like, stop. <laughs> She's like, I gotta put it on. But Voltaren is like one biofreeze and Voltaren, one or the other has like mm -hmm. IV or something in it. Like, mm. so it's like topical. It's and that's great. why people like it so much. Okay. Yeah. So then let's see. On 
Uh, some other questions I have for you mm-hmm. is um, I know like on, and I wanted to, while well, Kai is here, I wanted to, maybe you agree with me, Lisa, to tell Kai, like on day one, well, basically we're doing 110 miles every day. Okay. Mm-hmm. Something, something along those lines. And then, mm-hmm. so basically you start off going as easy as you possibly can because it's going to get hard. And, um, but then how do you, how do you train for it? So like, for example, mm-hmm. Do you train like looking at the elevation gain and try to do rides that have that kind of similar elevation gain or more? Or how do you train for something that's so big when you actually can't train for something like mm-hmm. like, like the similar mindset is with marathons? You can't train for marathons by going out and running marathons. They're too. Yeah. Long. yeah. So how do you train for a 300 mile plus ride mm-hmm. can't run 300 miles at a time to train? Yeah, there's a few things. I mean. I do a lot of sweet spot se- sessions. So during the week, you know, I can't ride seven hours. So I'll go for like a two or three, well, about a two hour sort of, um, it might be, I don't know, three by 12 sweet spot intervals, right? And I'll do that sort of as a couple times during the week. The weekends is volume. So the whole thing is if you look at your week of training, mm-hmm. like getting up to about 15, 20 hours kind of leading into your event. Mm-hmm. That's just like you building up the volume in your legs. Right. Then a couple things that are going to be really helpful is doing some test rides. So for PBP, we would do a test event of um I'm trying to remember now. It was yeah, cuz PBP was also on a time limit, right? So I had 84 hours to complete 750 miles, including my sleeping and all that sort of stuff. So for us, it would be a 20-hour day on the bike, four hours of sleeping, another 20-hour day, four hours of sleeping, and another oh. like 24, 27-hour day. Or That's legit. Wow. Yeah, it's, okay. it's kind of bananas. Yeah. So, so for you guys, so what we ended up doing is we did a two-day practice where we did everything. We put all the stuff on the bikes. We geared up just as if we were actually going to leave and do the event. Uh-huh. We slept for only four hours in a hotel, but like that was it. And then we left and we did another 12 hours the second day. Yeah. We figured out all sorts of stuff. Like these were the wrong bike shorts. They felt horrible. The ha- My hands felt like this and that. So I used different gloves. So for you guys, creating a practice weekend will be super, super helpful because You'll pack up your bikes. You'll see how your bike bags fit. Is Are they rubbing on your legs? Is there all sorts of stuff that's annoying you, right? And mm-hmm. then you'll also be able to do a big day. Like maybe you do an 80-mile day, right? And mm-hmm. then you sleep and then you do another 60-mile day or mm-hmm. another 80-mile day. Mm-hmm. That'll also help you just get the confidence knowing that you're like, okay, I've done almost half or more than half of the route. And how am I feeling? How am I checking in? So, so yeah, I think, and at the end of the day, you're going to go to this unknown place and you're just going to have to be like, embrace that. Right. And there's all sorts of stuff that's going to happen that you're not going to be prepared for, but that's kind of part of the adventure, you know, part of the burden. Yeah, exactly. And navigation too. Like we're trying to stay off because we have gravel bikes. We can afford to stay off the Mm -hmm. really we can stay off, we can stay off highways. We can stay off everything mm-hmm. until we absolutely have to. And that yeah. actually adds some mileage and some scenery to it. Yeah. So 
we're, cool. we're working on, um, and then also we've ridden about a third of the course, I'd say. Oh, that's helpful. Yeah. And then um, I've done a bunch of uh, 80 mile days back to back and stuff like that. And like, mm -hmm. um, Kai's done some like that. I don't mm -hmm. know if you've done like 80s, not 80s back to back. So then I'm going to be Kai Sherpa a little bit. I'm going to be Kai's faster than me, so, but he can't, he can't get ahead of me. So I'm going to slow him down. <laughs> Which oh. will appreciate it in the end, I think. And then another thing is um, because it's winter mm -hmm. uh, and we don't want to ride at night, we're mm. thinking that we're going to be able to get 110 done during the daylight. Thinking that. That's so speedy. how, <laughs> how much gravel is in this 110? Say it's 50%. But it's not the mountains, you know. It's national forest, okay. but it's it's hilly. So it's like a flat. Um, it's like the flat. Gucci gravel. No, well, I guess what I'm saying is that gravel is always slower, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I get it. Yeah. Riding at night is like kind of a whole other kettle of fish. Right. But I would prepare. First off, I would practice a bit riding at night. Because if the first time you do it on is on this course, it's going to feel really unsettling. Yeah. So get get your lights, practice with all that sort of stuff, because it's a different headspace. You know what I mean? Um, and then that way, again, it's one less thing. The thing with endurance riding, at least in my books, is mental load. How can I remove the mental load of things? Right. Mm -hmm. Have I never ridden at night? Let's ride at night. Let's see what that's like. Right. Yeah. Um, have I like, don't ever use any new things, right? Like, like don't buy new bib shorts and be like, great. Now I'm going to go on a hundred mile ride, like mm -hmm. stuff like that. It's reducing the things that you can control so that yeah. the uncontrollable things that come up, you can handle it a little bit better. Okay. Let's, um, let's get oh, ready to, we're to about, to lose, our, thing. Yeah. about to lose our time. So I'm going to go ahead and do what? Yeah, no problem. Do I just hang up and come I'm going to have to send you another invite and we have to wait. Like oh, okay. Like I need to pay for this. There'll yeah. be a dramatic pause. I yeah. thought I upgraded it, but apparently I haven't. Uh, yeah. uh, um, we've done, Kai and I have a pretty good time spectrum, but also we were riding a little bit harder mm. for the, you know, because we've done 80, what was our longest ride recently? Recently? Yeah. 80 something. Mine was 110. You've done 110? And then we can, like and it was gravel week. mix. Yeah, that was last week. Okay. Gravel mix. And so we could look at your time, slow it down a little bit, and then we're looking at. Well, and then also there's navigation. So yeah. add time too, and also stopping for lunch and stuff like that. And also, if you have a, are you using a power meter, Kai? No. Oh, okay. Cause I was going to say that's also helpful. Or you could look at the average heart rate, right? Yeah. Like that's just try to. Yeah, just try to use something so you kind of have like a gas tank. You know yeah. what I mean? Because if you're burning at like, for me, like 200 watts, you, I'm like, oh God, things are going to go sideways very quickly. So, okay. yeah. Let's All right. Back up and then... See you in a minute. <laughs> All right. So we left off with pacing, using mm. rate. Now, Kai and I are both racers and mm. we do long distance racing. So we're really familiar with that. But again, you know, just to remind Kai, do a hundred miles plus day after day after day. You got to go way easier than what you think. Mm -hmm. 
that. And then when you're done, you got to eat a ton <laughs> every night. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, way too, right? Oh gosh. Keeping that's the only thing. I mean, practicing your nutrition, like as you be- well, both well know with, with mm-hmm. racing, but I mean, figuring out those grams, uh, grams per hour for you is going to be pretty critical. Like for me, when I'm doing a randonneur event, like I'm at 75 grams in my bottles. So mm-hmm. I drink 75 an hour. And mm-hmm. then on top of that, I'll also eat something. So I'm probably up to like 95, give or take an hour. And so, I mean, I just read, heard this thing with Pogachar and he does like 120 an hour. Like you kind of have to practice to get up to that, but yeah definitely figure out what works for you and use your training rides as some of that sort of like fueling practice as well. Cause that's the thing that will make you completely fall apart. And then, I mean, it's going to sound insane, but having McDonald's for lunch or breakfast or dinner or all three is absolute magic because at this point you just need calories. Don't, don't get too hung up about like, Oh, but the fat and the, this and the, that, your body is like this furnace and it just, you'll hammer a bag of Doritos like you've never eaten in your life, you know? So it's just about keeping on top of the calories and, and whatever settles and feels good in your system. Um, Fat and salt is not, yeah. I mean, can't go too bad with those. Yeah. Cause like for me, fast food, it's just, digest so easily like it's kind of terrifying well, yes yeah, <laughs> so... it's already processed so bad right <laughs> but i mean i know exactly and and then we talked about mental load i know oh. exactly what i'm ordering when i go in there i'm not deciding and having a big moment about it because when you're resting you're resting you yeah. don't want to be like like even it sounds silly but it don't sit when you don't stand when you can sit don't sit when you can lie down like all of that sort of theory really applies. And I think when it comes to your stops, you're going to want to take the maximum time you can to actually relax, not to be like, oh, let me go walk to the thing and figure out what to order and what to do. Like, just take all that away from your, you know, decision tree. So uh, how many kits, how many pairs of cycling shorts and stuff like that do we need? And what Mm -hmm. kind of clothes? Because let me tell you what I'm thinking right off the top of my head. You tell me how I'm wrong. So I'm thinking uh, somebody might say a different pair of cycling shorts every day. And then, well, maybe, I guess you could wash them if you got a hotel room at night. And then um, another one would be, you know, um, a wool base layer and then a rain, mm-hmm. coat, a thin raincoat layer. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we learned that from backpacking. And then. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we wear the same jer- Do we wear pretty much the same kit every day and just wash it at night, or is it? Are we going to be putting on cold, wet clothes in the morning because it didn't? Yeah. Or just something I know, or is it a personal preference thing? Because some people say they like a new, a clean. If it's like a, just a couple days, a few days, mm-hmm. you know, they can yeah. can afford to pack a spare set of cycling shorts, you know, so that it's mm-hmm. they got a fresh pair of cycling shorts. I mean. I don't mess with the bibs. It's a fresh bib every single day because the thing that will destroy you, if you get a saddle sore, that's like just going to cripple you, you're, you're going to be miserable. So Harry breath, PBP, you brought different cycling shorts every day. Every day was a fresh bib. Like I just was not messing with it. And, and 
I would actually, a finer point on that, a uh, different chamois. So if you could, let's say you have two different brands that you like. Yeah. I actually think that changing the brand kind of helps like the pressure points, yeah. right? Now, now I'm getting really into the details, but I would use a, a Ponermal bib day one, an Azos bib day two, and then a Ponermal bib day three. Like right. just because it was like a variety. Yeah. yeah. Did it really make a difference? I don't know. I, I thought so. But um, but as far as a jersey, like I would wear the same jersey two days. If you want to go three, you can. Um, yeah. Same with a base layer. Like that stuff to me, it, I think two days is probably enough because you're going to get sweaty and it's going to get kind of salty and gross. And like you don't feel good on the day three because you're going to be tired anyway. So like treat yourself to a fresh jersey on day three <laughs> but um and then socks i would just bring another extra pair because if let i don't know what if it rains and whatever and you you don't want to put on wet socks on day two that's going to be yeah that's true unpleasant. we know about that from backpacking but you want to bring mm -hmm. as many fresh pairs of socks as you can stand because well, <laughs> that's for backpacking right because so much of that depends on your feet like you really yeah. to carry your feet backpacking yeah yeah um but where uh, with cycling, you really need to take care of your undercarriage. <laughs> uh, big time. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so, so then, well, go ahead. You had something. No, no. I was just going to say, like, I think, like, you can weigh out your kit, right? Yeah. I, it, which, again, sounds mental. But, like, you can pick a jersey. I like a wool-based jersey. So, uh -huh. um, and then I get really nerdy about it. There's one from Ponormal that actually has a double zipper that I uh -huh. really like. Because, again, you just want to have as much options as possible, right? Modularity is kind of the name of the game. Um, I use arms, so arms and knees in, yeah. in case it gets a little chilly. And then there's this thing called a burner that I really like, and it's just a little piece of down that you put under your bib straps. Yes. And it's just that little warmth for you. Yes, I showed that to Kai um, because uh, that's what the pros do in the Tour de France, mm -hmm. for example. When they go over the top of a mountain, they've built up so much heat, so they're sweaty. Mm -hmm. And they're 10,000, 11,000 feet. And when they go over the top and then they start descending, um, they're doing 50 miles an hour, 60 miles an hour, soaking wet mm -hmm. at at first at like nine, ten thousand 10,000 feet. And so what they do is they grab newspaper, mm -hmm. support crews, and they stuff it down their jerseys. Yeah, <laughs> crest over. You can see them as they're coming over the top. People will hand them things like newspapers and torn up magazine, and they stuff it down their jerseys, riding no hands. Mm -hmm. And the commentators are always like, "Yeah, they're putting that in as a wind block on mm -hmm. their chest because when they start going downhill at that high speed, they are going to freeze to death." Mm -hmm. And yeah. then the next at the bottom of the hill, they like uh, or mountain, they they dump it. But you, yeah, you had this thing that was like a quilt, like a, mm -hmm. a one and a half foot by two foot if that big like chest plate of, yeah. of uh like these black puffy jackets that we all wear yeah it's exactly that same kind of material but you could pocket you could pack it up into like a tiny little thing mm -hmm. it came with its own little stuff sack so yeah. it's a company called albion it's out of the uk i mean if anybody knows crappy weather it's the folks in the yeah. uk and yeah. and it's so handy because it's super small but right. it's it just does like you're saying it really makes a big difference um descending or even just when the cold comes in like well, you're going to be riding into the twilight and it gets kind of chilled at that point so um it, it, instead of having to bring like okay let me pack a giant puffy jacket or something i mean yeah. you kind of want to think about 
again, modularity. Like, am I going to bring a rain jacket and maybe this burner thing? And then that could be my like outer layer because it's a rain jacket and it's a jacket. You know, it'll do a couple different duties. So then another thing that crossed my mind was we're going to. So let's say the first night we stop at a hotel and then we're going to want to go get Mexican food, I imagine. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be all gross and stinky. And yeah, we'll shower and all that stuff. But then uh, what do we bring as far as clothes? And then the second night, we're going to be at Kai's uh, girlfriend's Mm -hmm. place. And they're going to have zero tolerance for us being all gross and stinky. (laughs) And But we only have so much room to carry clothes, you know, like street clothes, right? So when we get out of all the cycling gear, if you wear synthetic um, stuff, it starts to stink. Mm-hmm. So do we pack like cotton t-shirts or like try to find some wool, whatever, so that day two, day three, it's not stinking anymore when we yeah. go out to eat at night or we're around people. Mm-hmm. Um, take a shower before we go out. But then, but, but then you still got to bring a fresh pair of clothes. Yeah. So, so what do you, what do you bring Lisa for like clothes yeah. for, for the street? Well, for the most part, I try to eat when I'm still in my cycling gear. Like when I go to the hotel, it is done. Like we are not leaving the biodome at that point. Like we're in. So Yeah, but you know, you're doing like 20 mo- 20 hours and then a 4 hour sleep. We're well, probably, yeah. We're going to be true. doing like 10 <laughs> hours at most. But, yeah. I mean, I I personally so on this last trip, I brought two base layers. The uh-huh. first day base layer, I wore two days. So the second base layer I used as a t-shirt mm-hmm. for when I would go out. So if you kind of think about it that way, again, you're going to reuse that first base layer. I wouldn't bring cotton anything. It's heavy and it's like... That's true. You know, it's wet. It gets real heavy. Yeah. And, and if you have a base layer, it kind of looks like a t-shirt anyways. So, you know, that can do double duty. I would find a pair of light shorts if you could, or those really light sort of like, like pants. I don't know what you call those athletic pants, I guess. Um, for me, I wear like leggings and again, it's insane, but I like weigh them to see which leggings were lighter than the other ones. (laughs) But, um, and, and I do not bring shoes no shoes you're gonna wear the bike no absolutely not bike shoes just walk in your bike shoes it's not fun but that's again why i'm not exactly like going places for when we're walking around we can't go to that mexican restaurant wearing bike shoes in there i mean our feet are gonna be like we're done with wearing bike shoes i mean you take them like shower shoes like real flat shower shoes or slippers or something you could I just a, a first week. we don't have to go to a place where you like sit down and stuff either. Like fast food's fine. Mm-hmm. If it's Chipotle, they don't care. Yeah. Chipotle. So then okay, so then with the restaurants, we need to do some research where we're staying and what's available. Now I know in Huntsville yes. they have everything. Now mm-hmm. Crockett, Texas is not gonna have everything. Huntsville's a college town. Is there a hotel mm-hmm. in Crockett? There's a hotel in Crockett. They have a Holiday Inn Express good enough and then uh, but i I haven't looked yet to see what's around that holiday in express mm. because again we don't we're not gonna have a car so we're gonna yeah. need to bike or walk to a mexican restaurant or to a um chipotle or a mcdonald's right mm-hmm. and, definitely and see how far that is mm-hmm. and to a gas station to re-up on uh snacks and treats right for yeah 
as we continue on. So you would suggest going to like a restaurant or something before you get to the hotel? I personally do. Yeah. Like if we're coming in for the night, like, you know, we pulled into Monterey, it's like seven at night. We just went and had dinner first. So, oh. hey, here's an In-N-Out burger. Or there's a McDonald's or whatever. And we ate our dinner and then we went to the hotel because right. you leaving that hotel mentally and physically is going to be like impossible. <laughs> like you're just like, oh, yeah. Okay. You know, I yeah. live here now. You know, once you enter <laughs> and you're going to have a shower and yeah. you're done, it's game yeah, over. Yeah, you're so tired. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. then you're not going to go get enough food and you're going to be really tired the next it's day. It's a mess. So, so go ahead and get your food as you're settling in. I would personally. That's smart. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're then, in your bike, right? Because you, and that gets you there. It's super simple. And that's why, to Kai's point, like fast food joints, hey, I, McDonald's has happily let me bring my bike in every single time. They never give me hassle. So, like, spots like that is super handy. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. What are the questions? Um, like, I know we're going to stop for lunch and probably breakfast and dinner and stuff, but. Is there any food like you would suggest, like solid food, like I guess like normal food to bring while riding? I know I've had like sandwiches and stuff. Yeah. What kind of solid food I mean, should we pass? I know like gels and stuff over time, it, it doesn't digest very well. Um, yeah. It kind of gets really bricky in me, at least for me. I would start to figure out, honestly, if you can get some nutrition in your bottles. So like, honestly, the stuff I make is sugar, sodium citrate and Gatorade or country time lemonade or whatever. That's yeah, it. Did it's, you learn that for me? Or did you? <laughs> yeah, but it's super oh, it's, a, it's all the rage the past couple of years. People figured that out. That's all. You yeah. Need. And that's it. And, and everyone's selling all these like insanely expensive things when yeah. literally it's just pour a bunch of sugar Gatorade, but the sodium citrate is the move. That's what you need because otherwise stuff gets too funky. Now, Nice laughing so that, hard because that's exactly I, what we use. Because about a yeah. year ago, I I was on Slow Twitch, which is the big triathlon forum, and a, oh, okay. a, a food professor, a food scientist, was on there saying, "Hey, look, they figured out, you know, fructose to sucrose. The ratio yeah. of that is actually more important than the ISO yeah. osmolality. Osmolality is very important, but the mm -hmm. thing that's more important is the ratio of sugar to a uh, fructose to sucrose. Right? Mm -hmm. So they go kind of hand in hand." And the number one thing that has the perfect ratio is just straight up table sugar. Yeah. No. And so you get that and then you get your sodium citrate that way that you can do your sodium without getting mm -hmm. sick to your stomach. Because if you yeah. do table salt, make you freaking sick and, and the yeah, other pink Himalayan salt, like all that stuff. That so the chloride and table salt makes you mm -hmm. sick to your stomach. But if you get your sodium from sodium citrate, your body can handle that. That way you can get all the sodium you need for your electrolytes. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I taught Kai that a year ago or something like that. Mm -hmm. You used it for a long time. I was just using Gatorade Endurance. Right. Which is close. It's, it's pretty close. close but it's, what's you're going to, you're paying a lot of money too yeah. for that, for Gatorade. Yeah. Well, and, and at this point, remember, you're going to figure out your carbs per hour. Like you need to up that Gatorade significantly. If you're going to get anywhere close to the 80 grams an hour and then, or let's say you don't want to drink that much. The thing is that's going to happen is you don't want to have to eat all the time. Like to eat sandwiches is actually kind of tough. Like yep. you're, it's sore. It sounds silly, but your jaw hurts. So yeah. like finding food that you'd like, but that's kind of easy to eat 
So for me, like Swedish fish and all sorts of gas station candy, that works great. Um, Rice Krispie squares, pancakes, uh, stroop waffles, like literally anything, Oreo cookies. I mean, honestly, a sleeve of Oreo cookies is magic. And it's super easy to just toss in a couple of those. So yeah, figure out your carbs per hour, figure out what you can get in your bottles and then just eat a little so that you don't feel like you're kind of, I don't know, like not anything in your stomach, you know, but then that way you don't have to rely. Cause if you just did this with Gatorade and food, I mean, you'd be eating every 10 minutes and it would feel kind of gross. So on the, on the route and the streets and roads and the planning that itself, what do you like? I'm, I got two screens open. I'm just planning a route in uh, mm-hmm. the route itself, like in Garmin connect. Cause it, that's the easiest to get it on my Garmin, but like Strava has planning routes. There's uh, all kinds of stuff like that. Is there yeah. a route planner that actually, the, what I find is I have two windows open. I've got the route planning software, yeah. The map, but then also, because I can't figure out one without doing way more research that actually has Google street view built into it. Cause then I'm yeah. on Google street view to see how wide the shoulder is. If we, I want to go down oh. this or I want to go down that road. Cause mm-hmm. I got choices. Right. And I'm like, if I'm going to be on a, a state highway, I want, or we're crossing a bridge over the Trinity yeah. River, which bridge cross, I have two different bridge crossings to choose from, which one actually has a shoulder on it mm-hmm. that's three, four feet wide instead of the one with no shoulder, you know, whatsoever. Yeah. So how do you plan out your route so that you can actually see what's going on on the streets? Yeah. I mean, I just kind of use those Strava heat maps and like the Strava, like this is what cyclists do kind of thing. Yeah, that's and a good one too. Yeah. Cause, cause that way it's kind of like for the most part does a pretty good job. I mean, you're going to find yourself on some crappy part at some point. It's just yeah. going to happen. You can't perfectly plan everything. And that kind of goes to that moment in the ride. There will be a moment that's going to be the dark moment of this ride. And I think also preparing yourself for how are you going to mentally get through that part, right? So for me, like I have this, like I have a little picture of my mom and she's with me in my bike and like, and I have a little mantra on the stem of my, uh, Uh of my bike. And that's how I get through the tough stuff. So you got to figure out for you how you're going to sort of pull yourself through the dark parts because if you know, if you have a little bit of a strategy going into it, like now I'm on a highway with a bunch of crazy trucks and this really sucks. And why am I here? And it's 200 miles in my legs and all the bad stuff's going to happen. So figure out now I've done brevets where I've written stuff on my stem Mm -hmm. just so I could look at it and be like, all right, like there's endurance guys that, um, uh, TK, uh, is it TKO? Oh no, TTO, time to commit, TTC, there you Mm -hmm. go. And and they write that and that's what their sort of mantra is. So long story short, figure out your thing. And then on this route, I mean, just try your best to like avoid anything gross that you can, but know that you can avoid all of it, so. So Kai, mine will be in Star Wars when Darth (laughs) Vader can't stand to see the emperor like shooting Luke with lightning. Uh-huh. And then he goes, no. <laughs> yeah. 
So if you hear me, we're on a highway and there's no shoulder and traffic's open <laughs> 70 miles an hour. And I just go, yeah. no, oh. <laughs> I'm, in my limit. I'm trying That's to be good. funny. Good. Yeah. yeah. What's the, what's the worst uh, road interaction you've had with somebody and how'd you, how are you here today to, to have survived it? Uh, with a car or with a cyclist or with a dog or like... yeah, I guess. whichever. Yeah. One of I these. mean, I had a dog that almost like took me out once and I had to take like the pump off my bike and like <laughs> almost bop him on the nose. So that was pretty cool. Uh, I've had, I mean, so many crazy trucks and cars and I mean, it's, it's not even funny cause it's terrifying, but I think, yeah. you know, just, just trying to stay focused when you're on the road is important. And, um, and, and just whatever happens, like don't overreact. Right. Cause okay. don't like, over. Okay. don't overcorrect. Don't over anything. Don't just whatever you're doing. Just always try to stay calm and like, just don't over like, yeah, don't overreact. Cause that's when you're going to do something dumb. So what bike computer do you use? Cause on the fly, Kai's got, I'm using a really small screen, but Kai's got a better, bigger, you got an 845, 850, 870, you know, with a touch screen, which is a really, I've heard that that's man for mapping it when you're really mm -hmm. doing stuff on the roads where you're trying to on the fly like figure out what you're mm -hmm. doing a touch screen uh bike computer that way you don't have to press buttons to pan mm -hmm. like i have to press buttons to pan and zoom and kai can actually yeah. you can just push yours right mm -hmm. you know and and pinch to zoom you know and see mm -hmm. like what the next road is. what do you what do you use for uh navigating? yeah i use a, a wahoo roam so oh. it just has buttons on the side but it's a good point you bring up. At some point, you don't want to look at your mileage, right? There's oh, yeah, this thing that will happen that... So figure out the screens so uh -huh. you can already, ahead of time, make some screens that you can look at that either don't say the time or don't say the mileage or anything that's going to cue you to be like, oh my God, it's only been 20 minutes. Like it felt like we've been riding for four hours. <laughs> you know? So stuff like that. And, and I kind of like to play through those screens because then I'm like... Like, like the other day, I think we were riding, I don't know, like three or four hours and neither one of us wanted to look at where we were. And so we're like, yeah. no, don't know, don't care. Yeah. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I've done, I've, I've played around different variations of that and it really does work. And mm -hmm. one that I found that works sometimes, it depends on what the event and like what you're doing, but like some of them, if you're looking at it the wrong way, if you're looking at like the time since you started right mm -hmm. and yeah. and sometimes sometimes it's better to look to see what's how much time it estimates you got left mm -hmm. and i know that can be demoralizing it's the opposite of what you were just saying a minute ago but mm -hmm. for as far as fueling and pacing yourself sometimes it's like you got three hours left which is like a really good one for like iron man bike ride mm -hmm. you know, where you're like oh crap i got three hours left i'm riding yeah. i got one hour left this is yeah. not smart. And like, I, yeah. I got three hours to go. I need to eat. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a different mindset, but yeah, you're definitely right. If stuff is going to have like a negative impact on you, mm -hmm. you turn that off the screen. And another one is uh, people. Um, one thing that I've learned to turn off for me is miles per hour average. Mm. Uh, because I told you that one like early on Kai, right? 
because what you'll do is you'll try it. You're so close. You're writing like mm. 7.9 and you're like, oh, if I just go a little bit harder, I'll be 18. Yeah. If you want to hit these numbers or like yeah. this ride, you did 18 or 19 and you're like, oh, I want to, I want to do that. Then what you're doing is you're pushing yourself too hard, right? Mm -hmm. Because the conditions are different and stuff yeah. and you don't feel as good or you don't have as much energy. So you should, in my experience, it's been totally take off average miles mm -hmm. per hour. Yeah. Embrace or that zone. Miles. Sometimes depends Just on the Embrace that zone one energy, guys. It's going to be great. Zone <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly true. This is the low yes. end of zone two. You just Definitely zone, zone one zone forever. One. <laughs> zone one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let me awesome. see if I can get the questions. Okay. Let's see. I had them up here somewhere. Sure. And okay. How often do you stop? How do you train first aid kit? We haven't talked about stopping. Let's see. Spike spare parts. Um, do you bring a chain breaker? Do you bring a yeah. spare chain link? Uh, yes, always. Actually, chain link, uh, obviously have a chain break on your multi-tool. Uh -huh. And then also get one of those little Presta valve converters. So if you, if you hit a gas station, you can uh -huh. use the gas station pump, right? Yeah. Because yeah. you need that little Schrader Presta converter. Yeah, I used to ride with those all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then back when it was definitely usable, I had them on my BMX bike too. And so like, mm -hmm. uh, okay. And then how many, we talk about how many kits and then um, what do we need to go over? So do you bring a spare pair of bike cleats in case of bolt? Uh, do you bring any spare bolts? No. Well, technically the bolts on your frame, you could actually use that in your bike cleat. If you mm -hmm. had to, so you can always use a water bottle cage bolt in your cleat. Yeah. If you're using uh, SPDs, I think. Yeah, they need to be kind of like low profile. Mm -hmm. It helps for them to be. It, it'll work in a pinch. I mean, you know, you hell, a bolt doesn't carry much. If you wanted to throw one in your kit, you could. But right. um. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about that. You posted on Instagram again, hustle and a half. <laughs> <laughs> and I commented on it because it's two totally different mindsets, right? You were weighing stuff. You yes. were like, and I, I commented, this is my kind of crazy. I love this. Uh -huh. You were weighing leggings to see which one's lighter, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that that does matter. Mm -hmm. but also coming from the triathlon background and the racing background, it's like, well, aerodynamics matters too. Mm -hmm. So which one like packs down the, the smallest mm -hmm. you know, to make you spend less time on the road fighting the wind because you've packed it down a little bit. That's true. So, um, yeah, I really appreciated that, that, that map <laughs> and backpacking for sure. You know, people cut the corners. Off. If they have a paper map, they will cut the corners off their maps. They'll cut, you buy a map and then you cut off the part of the map, you know, you're not going to need. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. that is a milligram, right? And they'll cut the handles off their toothbrushes. So it's like half of a toothbrush. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah it can get really crazy. Like I'm not, sawing, I mean, I'm not going to saw the bar ends off my, my handlebar, but like, yeah, people, people can go pretty bonkers. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think I, I there's going to be like, it's a little, the endurance world is, is a little bit weight and arrow. And also I need it. Right. Like that's when it kind of goes to crap and you're like, well, but I need it. Cause 
you know, you're, you could say, well, you don't need a spoke, but mentally that gives you a little bit of confidence. So you know what? It's, it's something that you do need now. So I think it's weighing the, the pros and cons of some of this stuff and figuring out what gives you confidence that yeah. you have everything you need to be successful, yeah. but doesn't turn into overpacking. Like I'm going to bring three t-shirts because we're going to stop three days, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. I do like the Zen thing and sit there and I wouldn't call it meditate, but like, just try not to think of anything and then think of what bothers you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like, what bothers me is like, dude, we busted some spokes in the past year, probably about See? four or five spokes each. Well, maybe two for you, yeah, two. but I busted, I, bu I busted about three. Mm -hmm. And it turns out the sealant that I was using had ammonia in it. The old version of Stan sealant has ammonia oh. in it. And if you have, there's two different people who use usually two different types of uh, nipples on the uh, spokes. Mm -hmm. And if they're aluminum, ammonia will eat the aluminum wow. nipples and then they'll corrode and then snap. If you oh, have dang. brass nipples, I think it doesn't matter. You didn't have that old sealant though. That was I a, did. That was a while ago. Yeah, well, I had sealant laying around that was old. And I use that. And Stan's since then has changed their formula. Mm. Yeah. But I sent Kai a message. There was a review out for Pirelli just came out with some sealant and uh, it uses ammonia as their carrier agent, you know, for it to help it evaporate. And I'm like, they're counting mm. on the fact that you don't, that you're using brass nipples or carbon spokes or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and this also it stains the yellow in yeah. there. Yellow to be like Tour de France. What? And it stains if, and then you're going to get, yellow on your kit if it starts spraying if you get a mm, yeah um no. it made me think of another thing that if you have electronic shifting uh -huh. you're going to want to make sure that you charge your bike before you leave right charge yeah. like don't yeah just charge your bike know yeah. that it, you have the charge that you need all that sort of stuff when it comes to charging your devices i mean you're gonna have check oh yeah check the cords that you're bringing with you i've done that where i'm like this one will work and turns out it doesn't work at all i've got, a gar so. I've got several garmin cables and one of them does not work or yeah. doesn't work reliably yeah exactly you, know, you have to get it in just right and then you wake up in the morning nothing's charged yeah so no I'm bringing that's that awesome one. yeah um, um but tell us about your bike that you got behind you. You got your, you got one with my, with fenders on it. Your, yes, that's the, my, um, so that's a Mariposa. So it's a steel, a custom steel bike, uh, huh. made in Canada by Michael Berry, who was on us postal service back in the day, team sky, huh. all this sort of stuff. So, huh. um, so his dad started this bike company and, uh, he built this bike for me for Perry breast. And now for all my randonneuring. I have a dynamo hub in the front, so it runs lights uh, front and rear. Um, I have fenders on it now, but I take them off when I don't need them. Uh, this is a uh, Princeton Carbon Works wheels, uh, NV cockpit and uh, 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 seat post, uh, what else? Uh, Dura-Ace and um, Kusami tubing uh, steel tubing, which is kind of smaller. Like huh? it's kind of nice. I didn't need to have a huge frame. I'm not a big person. Um, oh, and an envy fork too. So Kusami, is that Japanese tubing? Yeah. So it's kind of nice. It, it's hard to see, but the tubings are actually pretty small in comparison huh? to normal steel bikes or normal bikes. And then, um, but it gives yeah. it more flex and comfort. I bet. So. Steel feels amazing. I mean, I actually just got a titanium bike which um, is a whole other story. This, that's a shop. It's a whole mess. But 
yeah, steel, titanium, it just feels so compliant. And, and on these long rides, I'm using 32s. Uh, GP 5000s. But that's something else to think about is your tire choice and your tire pressure. So just finding that right balance of speed and comfort. Like I had 35s on at one point and they were just way too slow. Like it was like insane. So, um, but since you're doing gravel, I mean, you might need a bit of a knobbier tire, but it might slow you down. So you have to play that out. All right. Mm -hmm. Do you have any more questions, Kai? We're running up on our time limit. Yeah. <laughs> um, Are you going to look at our course and give us any advice? Offline? I would say I, I will happily look at your course. I think the main thing is really figuring out where you're stopping, like pre-game it, like, okay, we're going to have lunch here. There's a McDonald's, right? Like yeah, right. figure out that stuff and uh, figure out where you can... Um, if there's water, like you're going to want to be able to find your water stops, right? The gas stations, whatever. And then try as best you can to do your practice ride, but do it where just like you're going to do day two of this thing. Because day one, you're going to leave and you're going to have all your food and everything's great. And, and then day two happens and you're like, oh, crap, I got to drink a Coke. And like, what am I doing? So practice, but as if it was day two and day three. So yeah. So do that on your practice rides, go to a gas station, make your bottles out of the, you know, country time lemonade you're going to buy there or whatever. Yeah. Um, just Luckily we've done a lot of that. Sits. We've done, we've packed uh, fuel and stuff in Ziplocs and made stuff. Mm -hmm. we, we have done Perfect. a ton of really hard 70 to up to a hundred mile rides where you got to stop at gas stations and, mm -hmm walk right through the gas station and not care what anybody thinks <laughs> and make more fuel because carrying pre-made fuel where it's already in the water is like so heavy. Right. Mm -hmm. So we'll carry water for like three, four hours, three hours, and then carry the powder and stuff mm -hmm. to make fuel again. Yeah. And who cares what people say in the parking lot is it looks like you're making crack or something in the parking lot, <laughs> powder and dust, you know, I mean, if anything, people are curious. They're like, what are you doing? Like, yeah. So. There's a little bit of a, like a savagery that happens when you do this endurance stuff. Like all of a sudden now you're peeing in the woods and you're just like, whatever. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, but you know, that's kind of part of the excitement and the fun. And um, I will say, you know, a space blanket is also not a bad thing to think about taking. That's a good Because um, those really might, help. Yeah. yeah it, I mean, hell, you could even wear it as like a bit of a windbreaker if you needed to. Um, uh -huh. I've done a ditch nap. Sometimes you just need like, all right, I'm taking 90 minutes or whatever. And you just sleep on the yeah. ground. So, And we've had uh, on our film on the New Mexico backpacking trip, we had one kid or two kids go hypothermic at mm. 12,000 feet elevation in the rain. I had to pack people in a tent to keep people warm. Yeah. Space blankets, burn, mm -hmm. trash, burn trash, which is very much against the rules. You do not wow. want to burn trash. Yeah, I guess not. But, but. Dude, seriously, we had yeah. trash. Everything was, <laughs> and everybody's just shaking, and we oh, know it's no. just plastic, and like gotta burn it to. Oh my gosh! Because we know it'll catch. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're all hovering around, burning trash, like trying to stay warm. Like, <laughs> oh my god! Like it's a trash barrel, like in the, wow, in a bad oh, neighborhood man. or something like that. And oh. then, um, uh, yeah. So the space blanket, you're definitely right. I'm gonna mm. add that to the list. That and really then the last thing I'll say is. 
bring your chamois cream with you. Now, like yeah, little pots. That. And I also bring a little on the bike with me as well, right? So that you can always put some more on. I have an aftercare routine that I like. I use the Azos aftercare mm -hmm. um, stuff. And there's also this stuff out of the UK called double base gel. You can find it on Amazon and it's an emollient. And it's just after a long day on the bike, I'll put that sort of everywhere. And it's just, it keeps me saddle sore free, but that's my own personal blend. So so you mentioned um, before we got started on the show, something about nutrition and fueling and that you've got something coming. Maybe can you talk about that at all or you want to keep that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, coming soon, but mm -hmm. I'd love to share with everyone. Eventually, I'll announce it on my Instagram at hustle and a half what we're making, but uh, some endurance fuel. So watch this space. All right. We will. Yeah, yeah so everybody, go check out Lisa on hustle and a half. It's lots of tips. It's funny. And you you make a mix of not just like sitting at home showing like, you know, this, that and the other. Like you do videos of like out on the road as well. It's like the perfect combination of both. Oh, well, thanks. <laughs> yeah, really cool. Well, and I'm super stoked for you guys. Have an amazing trip. Enjoy yeah. yourselves. Can't wait to hear the stories. Yeah. Thank you. You're a real yeah, inspiration to us. That's awesome. Okay. Cool. Well, this has been super fun. Jeez, thank you so much. This is amazing. Yeah, thank you for doing the call with us. Of course, yeah. Well, if you have more questions that come up, just hit me up. I'm more than happy to help you out. Probably will. Yeah. And when uh, are you going? Like, when is the departure? Yeah, it's funny. We're not. We're not going to add this into the show. But like, yeah. she's talking about like you know we need to do some practice rides. <laughs> we're doing this next week. <laughs> oh shit! Oh damn! <laughs> but thank okay. God we have done a lot of practice rides. Ah, you'll be great. And we have done races. We've done 156 mile gravel yeah. ride. And then I've done an Ultraman, you know, which is like crazy, like three day thing. Wow. And um, and that's nine, 10 hours a day hard. Yeah. And, but then as soon as you get off the bike, it's eating. Like it's just like yeah. Yeah. calories. And, and then um, and then I did okay in that because I I took that for real. Like you gotta eat mm -hmm. like, as much as you yeah. can. And yeah. then um this will be a little bit difficult because it'll be cold. Mm. It, but we're going the reason one reason we're doing it is christmas break and and i have oh, to yeah. and nice. then um the weather will be good aside from the cold i mean it's cold for here it'll be yeah 40 degrees or something like that yeah it's the coldest but it'll be it'll be um no rain yeah oh that's good you want to avoid the rain yeah, as you've been through recently yeah no so, fun yeah amazing oh and guys two-thirds of our course is going to be um um uh, Places we've never been. So that'd be awesome. Adventure. Embrace the adventure. That'll be awesome. Well, hey, thanks again. I can't wait to hear the pod. And, yeah. and congrats. Have a fun time. Good to meet you, hey, Kai everyone. and Brett. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Later, guys. Bye. All right. Thank you so much, Lisa. Like I said before the interview, talking with her made us feel like we were totally going to be able to get this done. And like I mentioned, I did have a flat and I did break a spoke, both in the middle of Pine Forest, actually in the middle of nowhere. And her advice totally came in handy. And overall, the trip went down pretty great. We got caught in the dark both nights on the first two nights, which was actually kind of cool. Being on the road and staying in unfamiliar places was really neat. Using our navigation skills from Boy Scouts and from high adventure backpacking and the confidence that those life experiences have given us made the National Forest just seem like, you know, just another place that we were. 
But what I'm going to do for the rest of this episode is we have talked enough about the pine burden and bikepacking. I'm going to make a second episode where I talk about how the trip actually went down day by day because that's worthy enough of its own episode. And we're going to wrap up today with telling you a little bit about how the Fredericksburg Marathon mountain bike race went. Okay, the Fredericksburg race in the German hill country is called the Hugeland. My boss that speaks German corrected me on it somehow. Like, Hugeland or something. <laughs> that sounds Swedish. Hugeland holiday marathon. So it's a Christmas-themed race. They put Christmas presents in the trees. And the town of Fredericksburg goes batshit crazy over Christmas with the big parades and the German town square. There's German food, beer gardens. It is one of my favorite places to go to. I'm half German and Swedish, so I get a big kick out of it. Blankner is actually based on von Blanc, which is German for the White Baron in 1800s Germany. So needless to say, this is a lot of fun. And I've been going for three years now, I think. And the course is limestone, hills, a little bit of woods. It's got like mesas, generally cold, but you never know. But even if it rains, the soil, it's not soil, it's just like pulverized rock, drains really well. So they're going to have the race no matter what. You're starting to get into the desert geographically. Like I was saying earlier, east of Houston and Dallas, that's pine forest. West of that, you get prairie. And then west of Austin and San Antonio is where you start getting into a desert. So Texas has three distinctive zones. It's got four zones. It's got five zones, actually. <laughs> it's my geography degree. Uh, you got your coastline, which is its own own beast of just pulverized by hurricanes on the regular. But anyway, the terrain is just awesome. And then the theme is awesome. And the town they hold it at is awesome this time of year. It's awesome every time of year. And the distance, 42 miles of mountain biking is nuts. Most mountain bike races are 20-something miles for the expert level. So you're doing double that. That's why it's called Marathon Mountain Bike Racing. Marathon Mountain Bike Racing is a legit worldwide sport. They have nationals and worlds. Worlds last year or year before was in Turkey or Estonia. And how it works is because it's an endurance event, you generally have an older crowd, right? Because as we get older, we develop more and more slow twitch and less we got more uh, diesel and less pop. So we like to go longer because that's more of a something that we enjoy. Let the kids go fast. We go long. But because it's an older crowd, they are definitely not interested in the parts of the mountain bike course that have big jumps or drops and stuff like that. So it would be like doing cross-country mountain biking 20, 30 years ago. We're doing another one coming up really soon in two weeks. And... They purposely route around the big drops and stuff at this one mountain bike park and don't include them because people don't want to do that on a cross-country mountain bike when they're in their 50s or 60s. And that's a significant, not a majority, but it's a significant portion of the, of the racing crowd. You have your young pros, but the point I'm trying to get at is you got to do this, man. This is so cool. If you have a mountain bike and you have an endurance background, you got to try marathon mountain biking and you shouldn't be scared of it because they take out the spooky stuff. The one coming up in a couple of weeks, I might do it on my gravel bike because there's actually a gravel road section to it, a long one. We'll talk about that in the next episode. So Kai won his age group last year or got second in his age group last year. And this year he decided to race open pro because he's a year better. He's a year older. He's 19 now. And then my goal was to improve on my time from last year, which I did. Very excited about that. And I'm just racing age group. And it's set up a lot like triathlon. Everybody's age group. 
and then you got your your pros. And also for some perspective, Kai did okay. He didn't do as good as last year, and I can't remember why. I don't know if he had a fueling issue. No, he pulled his hamstring, or was that a different race? But anyway, he had a personal issue and kind of treated the race like it was like a B race, not an A race. And these aren't very expensive anyway, so it's all right. And you can't have every race be an A race, you know? It's all right. But again, for some perspective, took him just under three and a half hours or three hours and 32 minutes. And, you know, for a pro and difficulty level, it's a little bit less than doing pro level all out half Ironman. And then for me, let's see, where did, I'm looking at the results right now because it's, it was on December 2nd. It took me four hours and 26 minutes. And I think my record for a half Ironman is just a little bit over that, like 440. So again, it's, it's like a little bit easier, a tiny bit than a half Ironman. So Kai and I drove out there and I think, yeah, we had Kai's girlfriend with us and she did bottle hand-ups to Kai as he came through. It's three laps. I love lapping courses as long as they're long enough and the scenery's good because then your first lap, you go easy. Your second lap, you push it a little bit harder and your third lap, you give it your all, right? They're really easy to meter out your effort. And then every time you swing by, you can pick up more fuel and water and such. And what I did was I had three camelbacks, all not full, but about half to two thirds full. And as I swung through uh, the aid station area, I just drop off one camelback and grab another. And camelbacking and mountain biking is really crucial because reaching down to grab bottles and stuff and trying to blindly put bottles back in your frame is a really good way to crash. I'm having to pause because the dogs are barking. But if I, if I pause every time they bark, we're never going to get this podcast out. So if you hear dogs barking, that's what that is. Another dog, you know, dared to walk in front of the house. So they're losing their minds. So the race starts off with a gentle, gradual uphill, which I just absolutely love on a, on a uh, Jeep road, a ranch road. So there's all the room in the world for you to negotiate and, you know, work your way around people that are slower than you or back off or whatever, kind of find your position before you hit the single track. It is fantastic. Unfortunately, when you hit that first single track, it is a little bit technical. It's like a gravel slide (laughs) on the side of a hill. But uh, again, that doesn't come for quite a while. And then it comes, it swings back around to uh, uh, the beginning of the race site. And then you hit the real single track. And I think it's like eight to 10 minutes of that as your start. And so they did the, uh, the whole thing. You do packet pickup. These races are great. Uh, triathlon is just the worst with how early we have races. I kind of get why, but again, man, other sports do it right. 9, 9 a.m. race start or something like that. You got all the time in the world to do packet pickup, eat a nice breakfast, uh, put your numbers on, you know, scope out the race site, do a warm-up, everything. Oh, it's so great. Anyway, we're all lined up. Emily couldn't make it. I can't remember why, but she couldn't make it. She had a family thing going on. And then, yeah, they said go. And that's like three or 400 people maybe in this race, maybe less than that. And I parked myself at the very back because I just enjoy going my own pace on these things. I'm not a very good mountain biker, skills-wise. I thought I was, and then I learned I wasn't. <laughs> and anyway, I have theories on that. I grew up mountain biking when the wheels were smaller and uh, the fork angle was uh, steeper and it was so easy to crash and smash your face into things and break your neck that those of us that are older, uh, having learned on these terrible mountain bikes, what turns out to be terrible mountain bikes, are of lot, have a lot of fear to overcome and a lot of PTSD. I've seen people life-flighted out of mountain bike places and 
I've crashed so many times. And then since I got a modern mountain bike, since they modernized mountain bikes where they're stretched out and uh, the fork sticks further out, it is. And then you sit more in the bike than on top of it. They are so much harder to go over the bars. It's completely different. And, you know, kids like Kai and people his age and a little bit older that grew up on the more modern mountain bikes with the 29 inch wheels and Oh, like wagon wheels, you can roll over everything and you never crash unless you do something really stupid. Then uh, they have like no fear because why would they? And I have a lot of fear to, apparently to undo. And every every time I ride, I get better and better and better. And I really enjoy it. It's, it is so great to get involved in a sport where you, uh, you kind of suck at it and then you've got years ahead of you of getting good. That's the way I felt like when I started to learn to surf and stuff. So like, I could not believe how bad I was at mountain biking. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, this is great. Because I know the more I mountain bike, the better I'll get. I got a lifetime ahead of me of doing this stuff. I'm always improving. Anyway, Kai's up at the very front. I can barely see him. Uh, there's a really funny video that Kylie took of people peeing in the bushes all around the race start. And she's like, oh, oh my gosh, <laughs> there's another dude peeing. And then they start everybody off. And then when I pass Kylie towards the back uh, on video, uh, I thought I kindly, you know, uh, handed off my jacket to her, but it looks like I just threw it in her face <laughs> and uh, take off up the up the hill and on the three laps of limestone mesa hills and views of the of the of what looks like West Texas, but w- real West Texas is more like El Paso. Anyway, the race went really well for me. I was doing like three hundred calories per hour, picking up a fuel bottle. That was another thing that I would pick up every lap. My bike frame only has one water bottle cage. I have a 2019-2020 Canyon Neuron that's aluminum. And the year after that, they added a second bottle cage to it. And my mountain bike really isn't a cross-country mountain bike. It's a more of a trail down-country mountain bike. So it's like a... uh, I had a cross-country mountain bike before that, an Orbea Alma, and it was faster. But it was a hardtail. And my bike is a aluminum, kind of heavy Canyon really beefy and burly. I like it. It's great for me. And uh, mountain biking is not the sport where I'm interested in being like really, really fast. It's fun to be try to be fast, but um, I'm out there just to survive. Kai can be fast. So Kai's got a race bike. He's got a Trek Super Caliber, like 9.7 or 9.8. And they only go up to like 9.9. <laughs> so it's like his is a top-end racing bike. And that thing is crazy fast. My bike is not fast. Mine's more like a truck. His is like a race car. But then I've got like 50 pounds on him, so it's okay. But then I've got like 30, 40 pounds on him, so... But then I've got like 30 pounds on him, so it's fine. It doesn't make that much difference to me. So I'm a decent cyclist, but I'm not a great mountain biker. So this thing takes me about four and a half hours, about an hour longer than uh, somebody like Kai. And I'm just out there uh, enjoying it. Oh, these, you can also wear headphones. They don't seem to care. A shorter mountain bike race... I don't know if you should wear headphones. That might be frowned. I did a bunch of shorter mountain bike races. I'm trying to remember if I wore headphones or not. I don't think I did uh, the past year or two. I did all the short races on the circuit here in Texas with Kai and even up in Oklahoma. And that improved my times a lot. I got way faster, way more confidence, way better at dropping in this stuff. So uh, I definitely improved over last year by like 20 or 30 minutes, which is always nice, especially as you're getting older to actually get faster. And it was on the exact same bike. So no tricks there, just better skills. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that Kai won last year. And because I remember last year, I got a phone call while I was on my bike. 
I was about halfway through the last lap. And Kai goes, where are you? And I was like, what are you talking about? Where are you? He's like, I'm at the finish line. I go, oh, how'd you do? And he's like, I won. And then I almost crashed because I was like, whoa, really? Well, this year I didn't get that phone call. Kai got, I think like 14th overall. Um, and last year he won his age group. But this year he, he raced pro and then he got 14th. But Kai's got the right mentality where if he doesn't do well, outwardly he doesn't show that it bothers him. I'm sure it does. But it, he'll just say, oh, that's all right. There's always next race or something like that. So I was really proud of him for that kind of attitude. And plus, he, ha- he had a really successful fall at his college racing stuff. So it, all of his eggs weren't in this basket. But a couple other tricks that I did was Kai pre-rode most of the course the day before. I took a day off from work, got there the day before. And uh, that afternoon, the day before, uh, pre-riding and mountain biking is crucial. And it's because you go way faster having kind of just solved the problems the day before. So then when you hit them at race pace the day of, you know, you've just been through there. It's completely different than road riding. It really doesn't matter that much. Mountain biking, it totally matters. To the point of a lot of times they run races backwards so the locals aren't used to it on a mountain bike course. Anyway, there was two spots that I typically get spooked on or have trouble with. And one is, like I said, where the the trail goes from Jeep Road down to the single track for the first time. There's a sketchy downhill that has loose rock and it's off camber and it slopes off to one side and then there's barbed wire fence off. <laughs> it's like, I'm just making it sound so terrible now that I think about it. It is pretty bad. But the uh, if you just point your bike straight down it, that's the thing about modern mountain bikes. If you just point it straight, it'll go there. It'll go where your, your bike will go where you point it. These modern bikes, they're amazing. All that weight riding between wagon wheels, how could they not, you know? Anyway, then there was another section where there was a like a two-foot drop off of an edge where there was actually a good spot to go down it, I found, uh, where you could roll down it easier, but you can't see it as you're coming up on it. So what I did is past it, I put uh, some rocks stacked. I was out there by myself. So I knew where to aim my bike. I aim my bike as I'm coming down the trail for those rocks over there, then as I come up to the edge, that's the spot where uh, my bike will roll down it. I've done that before, uh, scoping out. I do that a lot, actually. Scoping out uh, the Austin Half Ironman, there was a portion that went over a railroad track where there was the railroad track had an edge to it. It was going to flat your tires and you're hitting it at speed. And the day before, we went out and looked at the course and with a piece of white rock, so it was like chalk, I drew arrows on the ground on the pavement of where to go over the railroad track where the um, where it was actually the one place where it was smooth, only like three or four inches wide. And I could hear people flatting around me as I went over this one spot. Um, and I could go over it at high speed, and it worked. Anyway, those are the kind of tricks that you learn from uh, Zen in the Art of Triathlon, is that there's a lot of things you can do to make your race safer and easier if you think about it. And then on the race course, there was a section that I found difficult the past two years because it just seemed to kind of go on and on and it's when you're tired. And so I went and pre-rode that and kind of got that out of my head of what that was like and that it really wasn't that bad and it wasn't. And so I got that all out of the way. So my race ended up going really great. I hit those, those, uh, I went down the rubble straight. I have a dropper post and set my ass way back and down low and just went straight down. And I went off the little drop-off thing, pointed at the rocks each time, didn't have to dismount. The first year I did that race, like three years ago, I had to walk 
some of both of those because I was so spooked. And now I just go down it, uh, no problem. But it does take a little bit of prep work for me. I mentioned these places to Kai and he's like, what are you talking about? It's <laughs> like, shut up, dude. Anyway, then, yeah, the race uh, was over. Kai had been done for almost a, an hour. <laughs> and um, we watched the the ceremony, which was really cool, chill and laid back. And they had free beer at the end. A lot of these races do. And burgers, free burgers, actually. And then we packed up and came home. And it was really great. I had a really nice time. And I'm definitely planning on doing it again next year. And again, the reason I'm doing these races instead of just road triathlons is that like gravel, I kind of discovered it by accident. I didn't go out of my way to go do these things. I just got kind of drawn into them by life circumstances and then found that they were awesome. When you go off-road on a bike long enough, like gravel biking or mountain biking, the beating your body takes because you're off-road works your upper body kind of like the swim of an Ironman. Like you're sore the day after. And the very first one of these that I did that was a long race like that, I felt like I'd been in a car wreck. <laughs> I was like, wow, this was crazy. And that took several hours. I was like, man, what a cool thing to do. And then it's bikes, so it's fun, it's fast. And then because they're off-road, uh, the scenery is fantastic. So I highly, hello, yeah. Okay. Did you already eat something for dinner? Or no, I'm recording my party? podcast. So. Okay. So when I get there, yeah. is that what you mean? Yeah. Okay. Did you have a good day? Yeah. Good day. Me too. Okay. Well. Okay. Love you. Bye. And then the longer races, like marathon mountain biking and like gravel ride races, they're not as technical because they're they're more interesting to an older crowd already. And older crowd is not interested in going to work the next day and wondering where the wheelchair ramp is or if their desk is handicapped or bathroom at work is handicapped accessible. So that's what I always think of. Dude, sometimes I've got myself in some situations and I'm like, I'm wondering, uh, and I can say this because I was in a wheelchair briefly as a kid. Uh, I got run over by a car. So I'm like, uh, I wonder if my desk if I'm in a wheelchair, how would I get to my desk at work? And then I'm like, dude, what are you doing? This is not what you should be doing right now. And anyway, so those thoughts don't really cross your mind when you're doing marathon mountain biking or um, gravel riding. And if you do crash, you're off road and it's like usually into some grass or it's not on the pavement, you know, it's like on the gravel where you kind of roll along a little bit. You're not going quite the same high speeds as you would like on a road bike. And the events are long and they're exhausting. And it's uh, the scene, like I said, the scenery is awesome. So you mix this in with, uh, with Ironmans and stuff. It's just so fantastic. I can see myself doing marathon mountain biking as long as I possibly can. And there's some old dudes doing it, way older than me. An interesting side note is whether or not they allow e-bikes in it, e-mountain bikes. Now, I know in road racing, they probably never allow that. But in um, mountain biking, sometimes they have an e-bike. I've noticed they have an e-mountain bike category. Like, like they do, like they have a single speed category because, but you know, I didn't notice that this year. I wonder if it's kind of come and gone and like in races, you just don't do that. And here, I think it's probably regional because when we do the local time trial in the summer, there's a guy on an e-mountain bike and he gets a star by his name that he was on an e-mountain bike, but he participates and he loves it. And I don't think he'd participate without it. And I'm glad he's there. So I don't know what to think of it. I don't have a really strong opinion on it, one way or the other, as long as they're in a separate category. It's kind of like the whole transgender thing in racing. I'm like, 
kind of have an opinion about it, but also I don't really care. But I, I definitely want people to enjoy sports and be able to race and stuff. And since guys do have an advantage over girls and lots of this, you know, go ahead and race, but then you just get your own category or something. What's the problem? I don't see what the big deal is. But boy, am I stepping on a landmine with that. To some people, it's a really big deal. And I, I understand. I don't know. If you have an interesting opinion on that, send me an email and maybe I'll read it on the show. Like, But th- that's a different perspective, an unusual perspective from experience or some sort of fact or something like that. I know all the facts about it. I'd be more interested in a take on it that most people don't know. If you've got a strong opinion on e-bikes in racing or transgender men in women's sports, send me an email at textfornia at gmail.com and I'll either read it on the show or throw it right in the hot trash. (laughs) The one thing you learn in Zen, one of the many things you learn in Zen is to hold tightly to opinions. You get yourself in trouble because things change and to plant your flag strongly in the one area, you're just setting yourself up to be embarrassed later on when you find out that you're wrong. Okay, let's go ahead and wrap up this show. Next episode is going to be the day-by-day of the Pine Burden 320. Thank you again, Lisa, for joining us for the show. Again, she's at Hustle and a Half on Instagram. Don't forget, I do coaching, triathlon, Ironman, gravel biking, swimming, and trail running. All three of the sports are all three combined into one. And I use Training Peaks. Send an email to texafornia at gmail.com. I've always got a spot open. Be glad to pick you up and train you to be the most awesome that you could be. I've figured out how to train at a level where I just have to tweak my training a little bit and I can do just about any sport pretty well. And for years, I think my training stress score has been hovering around 115, which is like a slow pro, definitely a top age grouper. And it's all about training choices, lifestyle choices, training right, finding that balance of how much to swim, bike, and run, when to do intervals, when not to. And of course, you know, my history is I've got 15 Ironmans under my belt, an Ultraman, 100-mile trail run race, bunch of 50-mile trail run races, lately a bunch of gravel biking races, and one was a USI Worlds qualifier in Arkansas. But again, my specialty is I love getting people really fit and training right for ultra long-distance events and enjoy seeing them build up to being the athlete that they've always wanted to be. So yeah, you can just send me an email at texafornia.gmail.com. I charge 200 bucks a month, totally personalized coaching. We can get you started today. No startup fee. You can pause anytime you want. We're very laid back here. We do the right things right and let everything else just kind of fall in place. It's a beautiful thing once you figure it out. Oh, and one thing I always tell my coaching clients, eventually, I feel like I need to remind them, I'm not here to be your coach forever. It would not bother me whatsoever for me to train you on how to coach yourself. The more people I churn out that know how to train properly for long-distance endurance events, the happier I am, the more I feel like I've had an impact in the world. So you can consider an investment in yourself. I'll tell you everything that I'm doing, why, how, and the effect it has on you and the choices that we're making all day long. And then you can end up, after about a year, you know, you know how to coach yourself. I don't tell people that enough. I should market that more. A lot of coaches don't want to show you the secret sauce. I'm totally happy with showing you the secret sauce. I think it's cool because I want to live in a world where everybody is an awesome endurance athlete. Anyway, the last thing I'm going to mention before we wrap this up is the race that's coming up in two weeks is another marathon mountain bike course, but it's the excruciation exam, which is freaking nuts. It's eight miles of mountain biking at one mountain bike park near LaGrange, Texas. How, 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 how? And then 
you get on the gravel road right after you leave the bike park, no stopping, and ride 20 miles to another mountain bike park. And then you ride around eight miles of that thing. And then you on a mountain bike, and then you turn around and ride 29 miles back the other way to the original mountain bike park. And then you do half of the original park again. So like three, four miles of that. And then you finish. It is such a crazy race, kind of like the Belgian waffle ride in San Diego. You're always questioning like, what bike are you on? And why am I on this bike? This is not the right bike. What is going on? Is anybody on the right bike? (laughs) And the frustration of the thing. That's why they call it the excruciation exam. It is terrible, but it's also awesome. There is no bike made for 16 to 20 miles of real mountain biking mixed in periodically with almost 40 miles of pavement and gravel biking. You ride a gravel bike in this thing, you're probably going to break the bike. You ride a mountain bike on this thing, you're stuck out on the open road into a headwind on a mountain bike and you feel so dumb. (laughs) And the very first year I did it, I bonked so hard halfway through that it took me 10 years to do it again. And I knew about the race and it had been going on for 10 years. I'm like, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. And then suddenly Kai wanted to do it a couple years ago. And I was like, fine, I'll do it. And then I did it and my improvement in my off-roading skills made it. So I actually enjoyed it that time. And then, yeah, I think this is year three now that I'm on it. Yeah, I think this will be year three that I've done it after a 10-year break. You can Google it. Go back and listen to, maybe I made a show about it last year. Oh, I remember last year, my headphones died on the return. So I had about 20 miles, 15 miles of pavement and gravel and uh, and then a mountain bike. Oh, the very first year I did it, I didn't know that there was mountain biking at the end of it. I came into the, and also when I hadn't done it for 10 years, I came in to the finish line, what I thought was the finish line. And there was no finish line. And I'm like, where's the finish line? And they're like, oh, you got to go do another half of a lap of the mountain bike course. I was like, what? I was like, oh my God, dude, are you kidding me? This is horrible. And when I finished, I was so glad that I was done. Anyway, that's coming up in two weeks. Kai won his age group in that last year. And I think he's going to try to race it pro again this year or pro for the first time this year and see how he does. And a really cool fact about the race after Kai did it, somebody that's actually fast, the off-road stuff, he told me there's an actual strategy. You start off doing mountain biking, right? And then you leave the mountain bike park and you hit the open road for 20-something miles. He said that you want to be with that pack of mountain bikers that leaves the park because then you draft off of each other as a pack when you hit the open road like roadies do. And this is one race, kind of like Leadville, where people actually have aero bars on their mountain bikes. Some people do. It's legal in this race. And last year, I counted four people like that. And then when you're out on the open road, the people that are the real powerhouses try to drop people out of the pack, the competition out of the pack, by just hammering as hard as they can and splitting off. And the pack averages on mountain bikes, on pavement and gravel, open road, they average 20 to 22 miles an hour on fat tire bikes with off-road tread and only four of them out of the hundred, you know, with aero bars. That is crazy. And then you hit the other mountain bike park and then it happens all over again. They get bunched up trying to keep up with each other 
in the mountain bike, the other mountain bike park, which is more technical. And by then the race is really broken up. I think that's where Kai lost the pro pack last year. And then when they hit the open road again, because they're more split up, everybody's fighting the headwind. So you try to find somebody to team up with. Now, last year when I did it, the past two years, I had arrow bars on my mountain bike. And because I'm a slower mountain biker, I know I'm not going to be with that lead pack. <laughs> it's not even close. Coming out of the first mountain bike park. And I'm like five minutes behind, I think. And they, uh, they're they gone way over the horizon. And I'm by myself. And we're scattered, you know, just random people. And But I've got arrow bars on my mountain bike. And I... Being a triathlete, the worst, apparently the most diabolical and worst type of cyclist on earth. All the roadies. Everybody hates triathletes, apparently, in the cycling world. They think we're the worst. Because we have all these arrow tricks that we, that we know. And no shame. Because we know that arrow works. And triathlon celebrates not doing what traditionally is done. We take tradition and just throw it out the window. When somebody goes, oh, nobody's done that. You shouldn't do that because nobody's done that before. We view that as like... Oh, really? Nobody's done this before? Well, maybe it's actually faster. We should totally do it. Yeah, I'm going to put arrow bars on my mountain bike. I remember a guy last year walking around trying to find the race director and then bitching to the race director. He wasn't pointing at me. He was pointing at another guy with arrow bars on his mountain bike. I don't think I was viewed as competition, really. And he was like bitching about it. And I heard the race director say, it's not against the rules. I don't care. Just mind your own business. (laughs) I was like, damn, dude. Because, and that guy was obviously like a classic roadie or mountain biker and was upset that somebody had um, arrow bars on their mountain bike. But if you look in the bigger mountain biking world, it's actually a thing that's done. Like I said, at Leadville and on gravel bikes and the bigger gravel bike races, people put arrow bars on because it's faster. So I've already got in my mind this big debate going on in my head. Do I actually ride my mountain bike or do I ride my gravel bike? Because my gravel bike will be slower on the mountain bike course, but it'll be faster out on the open road. And I'm I'm leaning kind of towards doing it. I think it depends on whether it rains or not. And I need better tires, bigger, fatter tires to deal with the slippery. And the only reason I would do it is I saw some people on gravel bikes last year, not many, but a few. And I've done it, you know, four years now on a mountain bike. Hey, try something different. Let's see. But if I do it like that, I'm probably going to ride with flat pedals so I can dismount and run with my gravel bike on the um, on the more technical mountain bike sections. And I do have a suspension stem. If I had a suspension fork, I would totally do it on my bike. So anyway, this is the thoughts that are bouncing around in my head. And again, you just never know until you try. All right, that's it for an episode. Stay tuned for next episode where we cover the Pine Burden 320 in detail. Everybody stay safe out there. Work the uphills, cruise the downhills, and keep the rubber side down. Out.
320 miles over three days is what you do for an Ultraman. Hey, hey, no, go away, go away, get out, get out. Hey, get out, no, get, get, 